Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible. Wait, what? And I think that this is going to be one of those wait what's, even probably for myself and um, and Pastor Rowan. It will be a wait what for me, Jimmy. <laughs> I think I haven't done enough waiting or watching. No, yet. I don't think I have either. And so we're going to be fumbling our way through two books of the Bible, parts of two books of the Bible today. And fumbling our way. I like that. Um, hey, everyone. It's good to be with you. Yeah. So it's going to be, when I said, so the, the theme, I'll just get up there. So the theme for this chunk of this week is peace. Hey, how peaceful are you feeling about yeah, our conversation, uh, Jimmy? <laughs> not, not, not as peaceful. Like, and that's the, and the hard thing is every time I go through, like, uh, like I, I don't, I sometimes have it on the screen in front of me, but I'm normally listening to it and going through and I'm like, where's the elements of things that sort of really relate to peace? Or if there's a theme over that verse where it relates to peace and I'm just going through, I'm like, we're going through two of the hard, like two of the ones where people find the hardest to read right. because they throw it in the too hard basket a lot of the time. Yes. Gotcha. Um, and we'll let you know what those two books are in a moment. But when I said, yeah, okay, I'll do peace. You had no idea what you I didn't even look at the verses. Oh, I didn't even funny. look at the chapters. Actually, I didn't I'll be interested to see, because I've actually seen, I see a lot of peace, the concept of peace in these scriptures, despite the fact that they seem to be, um, coated in turmoil, don't they? Yeah. Yes. So we're going to have some fun with it. And anyway. that's, and that's the, I think that's the hardest thing is because these, um, these books or well, technically it's three books, but we're mainly looking at two. Mainly two. Um, yeah. It's the way, just the way that they're written, just the, the, uh, the language they use. Yeah. It can be very much if you, uh, if you get really, uh, if you are someone who reads and you like to get really bogged down in the, what's this mean, what's that, as you read it and try to pull apart every bit and piece, you might find it harder to find those things. But where if you can read it, do that, but then read it as a whole and then sit back and go, I can see where the bits and pieces are falling, but then I can sit back and look at the overall theme. That's a great way to put it. Then you can then find that piece because you can go, oh, okay, that's really heavy. That's really heavy. But it's the, look at this hope, look at this piece that comes out of that. That's where I think that's the... It's probably, well, 
<laughs> probably how you should read the whole Bible, really. Yeah, but, but in terms particularly of when it comes this to this genre, yeah, yeah. this kind of genre that we're looking at, which um, is a lot of the, what we're going to look at today is apocalyptic literature. Yeah. And, uh, and that genre itself, we'll probably unpack that at some point, what that means. Uh, we mm-hmm. can do that before, we can do that later, whatever you think's best. Yeah. But, but understanding a little bit about apocalyptic literature will help us to go, okay, this is a, spe- a specific type of literature style, literal literature style, literal style, <laughs> oh, you know what I mean, Ty- style of literature yeah. <laughs> that is um, specifically designed to be a little bit weird, a little bit uh, out there, but yet convey a message and uh, convey a message. And this, this style of literature, while it seems uncommon to us uh, or unusual to mm. us, was very, very common and understood in the first century when, uh, when the, well, even, even in the Old Testament as well as the first century, yep. it was a very common style of writing. Yeah. And I think that's the, that'll be probably, that's, or has been the greatest challenge I think for a lot of people is your, where we come, it's like with everything, we come to it with our own understanding, Mm. our own uh, way of reading or interpreting things. And this is very much where we're faced with something that is not our norm. That's right. And even if we go through and read modern books, even the most dense or complex books don't really look anything like this because this is not well one it's not just someone a book that someone's made up obviously but it's the, it's the fact that it's not just talking about the now it's talking about the past it's talking about the future events that have not happened events that have happened or events that are happening up there happening behind the scenes behind the scenes yeah, exactly that they that that they're still struggling to grasp properly as mm-hmm. well and just be able to make sense of it all and so they they get all of those things and then they bring it all together and then they put it all on paper. Yeah, that's and right. I don't think we really get anything that comes close to that, really. No, not in not in literature. I don't think. No. I mean, it's probably it probably is. Before we get into it, maybe we should mm. just unpack apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking through, thinking. Okay, as our listeners have some understanding of where we're going, it might help them. Might, might so, be, maybe we'll let them know which books. We're okay, why don't you yeah, why don't you so kick us off with where we're so, going today? So we're looking. So our Old Testament books we're going to look at today. So we're looking through four chapters of Isaiah. Yep, and of course, actually, as it turns out, two or three of those chapters are also written in an apocalyptic style of literature as well. So yep. bear that in mind. Uh, and then we'll be looking at one chapter in Job. Uh, so, and it's like towards the end of Job. So obviously, it's a bit of a it's a one climb. out of the blue kind of yeah, yeah. chapter. And then we are jumping across to everyone's favourite end of the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation. And this is a, our first significant foray into Revelation. I think we did a chapter or two with Becky Babington, probably about four months ago, three or four months ago, and I talked a bit, little bit there. And I'll just preempt and say I'm very much on my own journey with understanding apocalyptic literature. I am re- in a process of reworking this whole uh, understanding of this genre. So what I'm presenting today might be might sound quite different to what I might have said in the past, and I suspect that it's probably still very embryonic in compared to what I might be saying in the future as I spend more time in it. I was just saying to you off air, I'd love to spend more time in Revelation. We're going to spend a whole uh, month or so in Revelation next year in our locations. Um, and I'm not there yet. I'd love to do that. I've got some master's writing I have to do on the, the, the atonement first. So I've got a bit of work to do, yep. but I will get to understanding that. However, I'm in a, I'm in a rework and understanding, getting a fresh understanding of apocalyptic literature. So let's just talk to what that is for a moment. The best way I can describe it is to understand that it is written it is written text that portrays deep vivid imagery so 
those of you who are more artistic who are listening to this, you'll actually find this easier. If you're if you're a visual artist, if you're a connoisseur of visual art of any kind, you'll probably find this a lot easier to make this transition than I do. I can I can't make this transition easily because I am like 100% left brain. I'm very analytical. I have zero right brain in my test. So for me to be able to move into an artistic realm. Uh, it's hard for me. I have to now consciously do this. I, I walk. I look at a piece of art and go, "Yeah, that's nice," and walk away. I just I'm not wired that way. But and also, also I'm aware I'm the exception there. Lots of people can look and appreciate art and go, "Wow, there's so much uh, vivid imagery in that," and make it make interpretation of that. So, what apocalyptic literature actually is, is the word apocalypse has come to mean the wrong thing. Yep. If I say apocalyptic movie or apocalypse, what do you, what do you think of? You know, the, you know, when end of time, some yeah. big bad events happened yeah, or, like, you know, if you're a comic book fan, it's a character in X-Men that pretty much is the, pretty much is the self-designated bringer of the end of, of the, the world. end of the world. That's Probably right. The apocalypse. Now that comes from where we're going to go. Yep. Book of Revelation. It comes from the Book of Revelation because the word Revelation, the book is titled after the very first line of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him who came to the angel, who gave it to John, basically. The revelation and the word there, revelation, is the word apocalypse. Now, that therefore, we, everyone goes, oh, the revelation is about the end times and all this ugly stuff's happening and, you know, stars are falling out of the sky and moons turning to blood. Therefore, that's yep. where we get this concept of end of the world apocalypse. But that is a wrong understanding. The word apocalypse means an unveiling. So what it essentially means is it's the writer is is in some way getting a vision, whether that's a dream, like Joel says, you young men will dream dreams and your old men will see visions and so on. Whether or not that's a it's a vision that they're seeing a sleep or a waking vision, it's it's an unveiling of the curtain. It's like written to a particular people at a particular time, generally, almost almost exclusively, it's referring to a people who are suffering some kind of persecution or hardship or pain or difficulty in this life and finding it hard to persevere. And then along comes an apocalyptic genre writer and they have a vision which pulls the curtain back. Imagine you're on stage and the curtain goes back and you see behind it, you you might be on the stage, you're seeing hardship, but you pull the curtain back and behind you on the stage is, is a different perspective, is a heavenly perspective. And so an apocalypse is actually an unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes. We might feel like life is hard, but he says, look, in the end, let's show you what's really going on behind the scenes. Let's show you what's happening now, what's going to happen in the future. And it's this, it's written as an encouragement, not a discouragement or to frighten people. Mm. And many people are frightened by this apocalyptic literature. Many people are confused by this apocalyptic literature. But if we understand their vivid, dense imagery, that's basically artwork written in words mm. that is designed to uh, encourage the readers that basically God is on his throne yep. and then in the end he wins. That's that's what apocalyptic literature is all about. Yep. So there we go. All right. See you guys next No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll help, so, I think. Yeah. That, that'll th- help. Definitely. And I think that's the – that will be at least a starting point for people because we could have just said, yeah, we're going to be looking at Revelation and that would be enough for people to go, okay, maybe I'll I won't listen to this out. one. I'll skip yeah. this one. Yeah. Um, but just encourage you, like, and there's nothing like there are people that really do struggle with um, the idea of going through, like, you know, Revelation as, mm. a, like, as a book. So if you are there, I just encourage you to sit – with us. Stay um, with us. We won't unpack everything today, but we, no. when we get there, we'll hopefully at least 
touch on a few things to think about it differently. Yeah. Just to give you a a different, like a slightly different framework to start looking at that. Especially if you've grown up like me reading Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, we're saying off here and Jimmy said he fortunately avoided that. I mean, great fiction, great piece of artwork, a great, great fun to read, but uh, realistically I now realize, or I'm realizing more and more that it's, it's not the way to interpret the book of Revelation. So bear with us. We'll come at it differently. Yeah, definitely. And I'm like, I think I, I watched one of the movies. I think I it was might have been the Kirk Cameron one. Not the Kirk Cameron ones. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I don't know what's worse, um, Kirk Cameron or Nicolas Cage's ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Were... Actually, I did see Nicolas Cage on as well. There you go. So yeah. I was but it was more so like I never. Yeah. So I I obviously I never sat in that. I didn't grow up in a Pentecostal church. So, but even then, like I didn't really start attending church services until I was later in my high school yeah, in life. Sure. So I you know I was in youth group and stuff like that and. Obviously, we never touch stuff like that. It was a bit too so serious you, yeah. to even think about looking at that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm at least a little coming from a little bit outside that. But still, even then, it still permeates. It still does have that. Like it's those called dispensationalist still, yeah. theology, and it deeply permeates evangelical and Pentecostal churches. Mm. Has done for a long time, and we're in the process of winding that back because people are starting to realise that's not good. It's not a sound theology. Now, some of you listening to this will think I'm a heretic just by saying that, but to bear with me, I'm, I'm having to undo every, unlearn everything I've learned. And what the way I describe it is um, I can still argue a dispensationalist view. I can argue for a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture, all the stuff that, I, that I'd learned and taught. I actually learned in Bible college. That's, I was taught it in, in a yep. Pentecostal Bible college. I can argue that point and I, can come, I still can't find myself coming to those views. But what I've realized is the... It's like building a building, um, or let's let's use a different analogy. It's like being on a road heading in one direction, and I'm out by a couple of degrees, and I end up completely off target from where I want to be. And it's the foundational understanding of the way to interpret this apocalyptic literature that leads me down that path. If I come with this understanding, this literature is written with a definitive timeline. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. You'll see it time and time again. In You'll see it in some of this Isaiah stuff. You'll see it in Revelation. Therefore, we start to go, okay, something has to happen and then something else has to happen and then something else has to happen. And we end up with a chronology of timeline of things of the end. When these apocalyptic writers wrote and their visions, it's better to understand that when they say, then they saw this, then they saw this, it doesn't automatically mean those things are chronological in order. Yeah. It's more the fact that it's the order they saw the things, not the order that they presumed to happen. Yeah. Once you understand that, you can back up a little bit and go, I don't need to worry so much about certain things happening in a certain order. There's deeper, richer imagery in this painting and start Mm. to see these, uh, these vivid images as you're reading them, try to picture, um, I I tend to use, um, like medieval Renaissance artwork in my mind. Cause I, Mm. I think of Renaissance artwork as being very vivid in imagery, lots of color and lots of auras around the, you know, Michelangelo's beautiful paintings and all that. So I kind of imagine that what Michelangelo is painting is similar to what these people are seeing. Mm. That just helps me to um, try to picture something and then I can begin to interpret it. And I like it. I also think back to like to the, like the Orthodox iconography, which is very much like it's all about the, you know, the, uh, the spatial, the way they do things, the way they use the imagery, like there's always, you know, all these different elements that are placed in there that slowly they reveal themselves as you look into it further and further. Yes, sort of thing. And that's a brilliant example. Iconography is a great example yeah. of it. Yeah. And that's very foreign to us Westerners who mm. have been brought up in a Greek, Greco-Roman mindset, which is very analytical. It's got some yeah. great things about it, but we just need to realize when it comes to apocalyptic literature, it won't do us any favors. Yeah. So undo that 
and think think like an artist. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to kick it off in Isaiah 25. So we'll yep. go there now. Straight away. Okay, Isaiah 25. And I think what we're for a couple of these ones, they are not too long. No, um, quite sure. So what we'll do is just um, I'll read through them mm-hmm. and then we sort of um, have a look because, as we said before, it's not just diving into the bits and pieces. It's good to have that overview. Yeah, sure. Um, so Isaiah 25. Uh, I'll read it in the NLT because that's what we have been doing. So I'll mm-hmm. start with that instead of having the NIV in front of me. I have the NIV in front of me because, thankfully, it's got a little hyperlinks for everything. So if we need to go searching. That'll come right very handy when we get to Revelation probably. Okay. Um, Isaiah 25. Oh, Lord. I will honor and praise your name, for you are my God. You do such wonderful things. You planned them long ago, and now you have accomplished them. You turn mighty cities into heaps of ruin. Cities with strong walls are turned to rubble. Beautiful places in distant lands disappear and will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong nations will declare your glory. Ruthless nations will fear you. But you are a tower of refuge to the poor, O Lord, a tower of refuge to the needy in distress. You are a refuge from the storm and a shelter from the heat. The oppressive acts of ruthless people are like a storm beating against a wall or like the relentless heat of the desert. But you silence the roar of foreign nations as the shade of a cloud cools relentless heat. So the boastful songs of ruthless people are stilled. In Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for you uh, for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet, with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. They will remove the, they there. He will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against His land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, This is our God. We trust in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. For the Lord's hand of blessing will rest on Jerusalem, but Moab will be crushed. It will be like straw trampled down and left to rot. God will push down Moab's people as a swimmer pushes down water with his hands. He will uh, end their pride and all their evil works. The high walls of Moab will be demolished. They will be brought down to the ground, down into the dust. Oh, how's that sound for being a peaceful chapter? There's a whole lot of destruction and death and dying in there, isn't there? Yeah, and that's the the thing that I was like, if you, it's, I, I was saying beforehand, like you can definitely read this and be like, oh, it's trying to look at it with the eyes of where's the peace in this and it's very easy to, sort of miss it, I think, mm. if you if you're diving too deep and trying to find bits and pieces of um of verses there. So um so yeah, so in that first section, pretty much it's this praising like an I'll honor and praise your name for you've done wonderful things. You planned them from long ago. You have accomplished them. So it's this building up of God uh, and saying how great you are. Um, you know, and then <laughs> you turn cities into heaps of ruin. Uh, cities with strong walls, you turn them to rubble. Beautiful places in distant lands disappear and never be revealed. Therefore, strong nations will declare your glory. 
um, ruthless nations will fear you. Hmm. How, like even just in that part there, it's just like you've got, you feel as though that, you know, this build up of oh, how great God is, but then it's how great you are and then you've done these things. You've done these destructive things? Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good question. And theologians have wrestled with that. It's, it comes back to the simple thing of how do you contrast, you know, this is base level understanding, but you know, you might have heard people say, how do we contrast gentle Jesus with the God of the Old Testament? Don't mm. they look totally different? We see this angry, vindictive God in the Old Testament and this gentle turn the other cheek God in the New Testament. So that's at its lowest base level. Um, but once again, we're dealing here with a very common context. This particular passage has got little bits of apocalyptic literature, you know, but it's probably just more just clever. It, there's no indication this is a vision. This is just more probably clever um, piece of writing. Yeah. Uh, but the context is Isaiah is writing to a people who are, for want of a better term, in exile. Whether they're literally in exile during the time this is written, or they are um, feeling like they're in exile in the in the time that they're alive. Now, Isaiah is written. We're assuming that. Let's assume for a moment. This is mm. probably not true, but let's assume for a moment that the one man Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah. That's probably not the case, yep. um, and we'll deal with that at a different time. <laughs> um, but let's assume that this is written to, at a time when there is oppressive kings could have been written during the time of Ahaz, who was a Jewish king, who was an oppressive king, or Manasseh, who was also a Jewish king, who was an oppressive king during the time of Isaiah. And in that context, life is hard. In fact, life has always been hard for God's people. It's not really any different mm. now. Through from, from history, beginning, there's always this understanding of life's hard. Life is broken. The world doesn't work the way we intrinsically, intuitively think it should. Uh, there's persecution, there's hardship, there's pain, there's loss, there's grief, all mm. of those sorts of things. And oftentimes it's at it's it's via other people or other nations in this case, people who, who have mm. come against us or come against God's people. And so very much like we're going to see in the book of Revelation where the church is suffering under persecution from Rome, these people in this time are also suffering. We, in our time as the church, mm. are experiencing a time of suffering and hardship. So it applies. And what this shows is it's like a rolling back saying, look, in the end, God's still in control. And in the end, he will bring justice upon those foreign nations that oppress you. Mm. And so that's kind of the the backdrop here as to what is being uh, explained. We see, you know, when God is bringing justice on distant lands and cities which were once powerful cities that were oppressive cities are being are crumbling, never to be rebuilt, that's a sign of God instituting his kingdom values, not mm. the values of man, the values of of wicked humans. Yep. Yeah. And that's like, because as I read through and reading through all of the verses, I always hear bits and pieces of the language from Isaiah in it, just like, oh, I've heard that before, but not in this context. I've heard it in like the New Testament context. Isaiah is the, after the book of Psalms, Isaiah is the most, most quoted, quoted book in the mm. New Testament. And even a lot of Isaiah and Psalms quote each other. Yes, they do. Type thing as well. Yep. Um, or, whether which one was first, who knows, but that's the, like in terms of how it was written. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, that's the, like I suppose that's that first section there probably really sums up what we're going to be looking at through Isaiah. It's going to be a little bit like that. Yes, this this victory of the Lord mm. at, over the powers of this world, yep. over the broken, uh, harsh, 
vindictive powers of this world. Yeah. Now, what we need to realize is that in that era, it's often portrayed, and it is in the book of Revelation too. Mm. There's little hints that it's otherwise, but it's often portrayed as this victorious, conquering, ruthless king, yep. God, who somehow is ruthlessly overcoming the ruthless. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the imagery that's used because that's the imagery they understand. Mm. But that's the bit that confuses people because that that doesn't sound like the gentle, loving God. Yeah. You know, why would God do that? And if we can just get an understanding that that's partly vivid imagery. Yep. But also it's it's um shows God's passion for justice that God will right the wrongs. Yep. Those who oppress others will receive uh due, du- due justice. Mm. And that's the like when everything's you know when you write like you're using say imagery or you're using an analogy or anything like that to help explain something to someone you're going to use something that is most uh, relatable for them in their yes. context. Yep, correct. Um, so uh, God limits himself yep. to work within the context mm. that people are, are living in at that time. Yeah. So in that time is that it's just the nature of the way the world was working that God's people had to go to war. Mm. Like we even we talked about before and you know, pretty much anything that references most of the Old Testament stuff is that there was time for war. Um, and there was a time for rest. There was always that there was literally seasons where you would go to war. So the whole idea of conquering and all that sort of stuff is so ingrained in them that even if it's not something that they desire, because obviously that they're desiring peace. Peace. Like, that's right. Yes. Like they're desiring to not have to go to war. Like the reason war isn't the reason, like isn't the reason that they then follow God is that they follow God into war to then bring, bring about peace. peace. I think that's a good example. So, for for instance, the concept to, to the ancient cultures of life imprisonment as a punishment really wasn't there. Yeah. Um, no culture really saw, okay, I'm locking you up for the rest of your life. It was like, well, why would we drain resources on that? Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, you've done a capital crime, you deserve capital punishment. Yeah. And so that was seen as throughout all cultures as the ultimate sense of justice. So mm. that's the framework that they're working with. And that, that, that might seem kind of challenging to most Western Christians because there's a few around who are advocating for capital punishment, but I think mm. most would go, no, no, just the person deserves to be locked up forever. Yeah. You know, if they've committed a crime of that, that magnitude. Now let's take that understanding and put that into this context because that could seem ruthless. Yeah. That could, well, lock the person up forever. Where's the forgiveness in that? But we don't have a problem with that. Yeah. We don't think that's wrong. We no. think, no, that, that should be, that's a just judgment for a particular crime. So let's just recognize that we're not as enlightened as we think we are. Yeah. We still have a sense of justice. It's just that we, our understanding of justice has developed beyond these people. Yeah. And the we shouldn't sit in judgment the on them. The, the outworking, outworking of that. Yeah. These people understood justice to be, if you do something wrong, you'll come underneath the justice of a foreign power, mm. an oppressive people who will rule you. And in this case, these people are being oppressed and they're looking, and the promise Isaiah is giving them is, you feel like you're oppressed now, but but God is going to bring justice in the end. Yep. And we, if it, you feel more comfortable reading and going, and God locked them up forever and ever, <laughs> yeah. you know, put them in prison. If you feel that, if that helps you, mm. Read it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, so look at the – and I think the the thing that helps you see a bit more of the, the – like I suppose maybe that gentle, peaceful side of God is the fact is, like say, like in verse 4, you are a tower of refuge for the poor, um, for the needy in distress. Oh, well, that's encouraging. It's peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. So the – you know, they – well, 
was it the Darlene, like the Tower of Refuge and Strength? That's the, yeah, Tower of Refuge and Strength. Yeah, that's com- coming out of this and out of, of this, Psalms. It's all Psalms, through yeah. there. Yep. And it's the whole idea that that we push into God for that protection, for that place to to find peace is by pushing into God who will be our refuge. So refuge, just a place to hide, a place to feel safe, a yep. place to be protected. If you're if you're out in the lands farming mm. and you're in distress and you run behind the walls of the medieval castle, yep. there's peace. Yep. You know, oh, you can't get me in here. Mm. That's the picture. Yep. The God is that. We can find peace despite the distress. Yeah. Because, yeah, as it goes on from the rest, of the, <laughs> you know, there's refuge from the storm, the heat. So there's all this imagery of all these things that can come against you, which are, you know, too much for you to handle on your own is what it's saying. So it's it's that drawing in that you are going to face things yep. that are way too big for you to be able to handle, um, way for you to – the things are going to come against you that, okay, you might be able to stand against for a certain period of time, but you will have to push back into God and seek refuge and let him then protect you from those things and let him then work out into those areas with you fo- then following him into those areas. So Yeah, that's um, well said. Yeah, because we said, yeah, go through all the – like through four and five, it talks a lot about all the things that, you know, pretty much can come against you uh, and then what then God, God will do. God will do as, as spread a wonderful feast in front of you, it says yeah. in verse six. It's like a instead of this famine, there's going to be feast. Instead yeah. of heat, there's going to be, you know – Beautiful cloud cools cl- cloud yeah. <laughs> yeah cloud cooled weather all of the, it's yeah. it's contrasting hardship with the promise of restoration and peace yeah just trying to think was there anything that we haven't sort of covered off on that one um, I suppose the only well did you have something else before I was just going to add there's in, hidden nestled in here and in, nestled in this judgment there's still this promise that all the nations will come yep so it's hidden in there this this um, prophetic development about the Messiah. The, and they, Israel is still holding this vision, even though they are being oppressed by the foreign nations, they're still holding this vision that when the day of the Lord comes, when God redeems, when God restores peace, it won't just be for Israel. All the nations of the earth will come. Where was that? That was written in there somewhere. Um, um, it actually promises that... that um, in verse 9. Verse 9, starts, is it? Yeah. In that day... The people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. So this is God's people, right? Yep. This is Israel. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice and bring the salvation. For the Lord's hand of blessing will rest on Jerusalem. But Moab will be crushed. Now, this is talking about the foreign powers, mm. but it's going to go on. It probably might have been oh, it might be, might be slightly earlier. It's going to go. It, it does actually have this promise that all the nations will ultimately come. Uh, it's verse oh, yeah. three, right back in verse three. Therefore, strong nations will declare your glory, and ruthless nations will fear you. And then it's again in in verse six, it's like we'll spread a f- um, wonderful feast for all the people. All of the, the people—that was the one I was looking for. Yeah. So there's this sense of justice, but there's also this sense of restoration of peace for all peoples. Yeah. And the Jews held that very dear. That that became the development of their understanding of the Messiah, one who would bring peace, would put to put to pay the injustices of this world and res- restore all people to a place of peace. Yeah. And that's, and you touched on there, like and the, the other part was, was like the idea of Moab. So Moab, they're, they're talking about Moab because that is an imagery for the people of the time would know exactly what they're talking about. Absolutely. In the- Moab's nation, Moab were a neighboring country. Yeah. Um, they were related, 
yep. distantly related. Moab was related through Lot. Yep. So not quite as related as the nation of Edom, who were like Israel, it was Jacob's brother, but mm. cousins. Yep. But they were a neighboring country and they were renowned for worship of their god Molech, which was a god that uh, was involved in child sacrifice and all kinds of horrible things mm. and desperately regarded as one of the most enemy, the biggest enemies. Yep. Moab were, I think Moab was the, uh, ba- Balaam was from Moab. A Balak was from Moab, yeah, think, yeah. and he summoned Balaam to come and curse them. So mm. there's a deep hatred or dis- between the two, um, yep. two world powers that are very different. So when you see Moab being crushed, that's a sign of God's people being vindicated. Yep. The enemy will be brought down. And that's the thing. And like in that, that, like that, that's that imagery again of yes. that whole is that for them, they'll know, and then all of the and they'll know that all future people who come back and read this will know yep. that the idea of Moab is this um, is the powers that are the Neighbor. opposite, exactly Spot the opposite on. of what stands for God. Yep. So you know, like as you said, all the despicable and things that things that even like now. That's like, right. There are Moabs in the world. That, yeah. Moab is a country, but it's an ideology. Yeah. It's it's a way of life that is working against the people of God. Yeah. And so we can read that and bring it up into the 21st century. Yeah. And it's not advocating for us going around and shouting at Moab. It's it's about advocating for us trusting that God will, will push down Moab, it says. Yeah, because that's the, and, and that's everything in here. And that's the, it's that contrast between the, the God of the Old Testament who went and waged wars and all that sort of thing. Um, how is that the God that loves? Mm. But then it's not waging wars for the sake of waging war. No. It's waging wars to to eradicate the evils of the earth. That's correct. And in the way that is part of the culture of that time. So where now we build in laws and, you know, we, you know, even though the world isn't necessarily always a pe- isn't even at the its time isn't a peaceful place. There yep. is war currently going on, and there, are, there always will be. But the push now is that, and what people of God we need to be doing now is to be pushing into God and be like, okay, what is it that I can be doing? Because there's so much going on in the world, and we got so much information about what's going on in the world. But that's a different conversation. Is that okay? Instead of trying to figure out, oh, going, oh, that's just too much, and. I'm just going to fall into God and just sort of let it all happen. What is it that I can be doing to see the Moabs either that are directly in my life or in those that are around me to then work inside the framework that God has placed and in the the laws of the land and all of that sort of thing to then come and crush. Beautiful. Sounds kind of like Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, mm. for they shall inherit the earth. Yep. Yeah. That's, uh, I think there's a sense in which we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to enforce the peace that Jesus has done. I don't think we're going to look at it in our Revelation scriptures, but one of the things that I've come to realize, uh, which is helpful in all, even in this understanding of what we're talking about here with God's judgment, there's this vivid picture in Revelation of Jesus coming and trampling the winepress of God's wrath. Mm. And, um, it says his robes are uh, covered in blood. And you read it and you think it's talking, it's, it's, it's a quote from the Old Testament. And you, at first glance, you think, oh, that Jesus is trampling and the blood that's on his clothes is his enemy's blood as he tramples them. But 
but the imagery that John picks up on is that it's actually not the blood of the enemies. It's actually his own blood. His own blood is already on his robes. Mm. So Jesus, the imagery John is wanting you to pick up and the way God works and brings justice is he brings justice by laying down his own life. Justice comes through his self-sacrifice, not through some sense of him um, being, uh, you know, active in warfare against the enemy. When he has a vision of a sword, it's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. So once again, there's this picture of Jesus has defeated the enemy through giving up his life, not through conquering in a military fashion. And if we can reverse engineer that back to some of these Old Testament passages, we see them in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's Isaiah 25. Now on to 26. All right, 26. Isaiah 26. Uh, so what we'll do is we're going to read. So this is a a song, like a lot of the first, well, almost all of it. Most of it, I'd say. Probably about two th- uh, two-thirds of it, at least, maybe three-quarters um, are a song. And there's a little bit at the end. So we're going to go through. We're just going to read the start, and then that just gives you an idea of that is. We'll look at a couple of verses after that. Rather than read the whole thing. It's slightly thing. longer than the last, uh, the last yeah. chapter. Yeah, sure. So it starts off, so it's a, a song of praise to the Lord. Uh, in that day, everyone in the land of Judah will sing this song. Our city is strong. We are surrounded by the walls of God's salvation. Open the gates to all who are righteous. Allow the faithful to enter. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. He humbles the proud and brings down the arrogant city. He brings it down to the dust. The poor and oppressed trample it underfoot, and the needy walk all over it. So that's just the, that's, and we go, like, it'll go through and, again, like, talk about the, you know, the righteous, um, you know, it, like, it talks about, yeah, that they, that you smooth and pave the way ahead. The righteous and, we've indicated like, in yeah, that sense. So, and it, it works through. Um, so, but before we, Jumped too far down. Um, Rowan wanted to have a look at that. There says this phrase at the beginning, in that day. In that day. Okay, you're going to see this phrase, in that day, appear multiple times throughout the whole Bible. Um, it's a very much a developing theme. In fact, the Bible Project have got a great little video called The Day of the Lord, you, which will give you an understanding of this. Um, uh, we see it in, in Joel. Uh, in the last days, in the day of the Lord, we see Joel, in, Peter quoting Joel um, in the day of Pentecost, in that day. So the day that, whenever you see this term, that day, you need to understand that throughout uh, Old Testament history, it was a developing understanding and it came to represent this day of God's vindication, it, this day when God would right every wrong. And yes, it had some, oftentimes it has um, comforting imagery attached to it. We're going to see some of that here. Mm. Come away while I protect you from the coming judgment. It also has a judgment imagery to it. So and sometimes you see it, it's quite vividly judgmental. Mm. And and once again, it contrasts a little bit with what we were saying in the previous chapter about our understanding of this judgmental God. But but what we need to understand is that God, it, the, the day of the Lord is the day when God will put everything right. And um, we kind of think, well, that, that, that day of the Lord is still to come. You know, one day Jesus is going to come back and put everything right, but we're not in that day of the Lord yet. Mm. Uh, a better understanding of that is not to be quite so chronological about it. 
while there's a sense that we are awaiting the final consummation of that day, uh, the understanding that the writers had, and even the New Testament writers, was that the day of the Lord has partially at least already come. Mm. That, that Jesus uh, bringing about victory on, on the cross through his resurrection and ascension is part of that process of victory. Yep. So the day comes to represent an ideology or rather than a, a, a one-time event, it comes to represent um, a, a vindication of the righteous. Yep. God restoring the earth to the way it was intended to be, to put away with unrighteousness, to judge wickedness and to install righteousness. And uh, that day of the Lord does have a non-chronological sense. One thing I, want to, I don't want to say that it isn't, I think I've already said it, but let's just go there one more time so my listeners don't get confused. That's not to say that there isn't a final consummation, the, the coming of Christ. That picks up in the book of Revelation, sorry, book of Thessalonians, where Paul rebuke, you know, cor- corrects some questions among the Thessalonians because people were coming and saying, oh, the day of the Lord has already come. And he says, no, 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 the day of the Lord is yet to come. Yeah. And what Paul means is that there is a final consummation of all things where you will actually see on the earth, heaven and earth, you reunited, where you'll see the righteous uh, victorious and the un- the unjust overthrown. That we're not there yet. Jesus has instigated the day of the Lord, mm. but he has not yet consummated the day of the Lord. Yeah. We're living in a now and not yet component. And all of this apocalyptic literature that we're going to look at today is about that. Yeah. You have this future hope that that you'll be put right, that, that, that you'll, you'll be vindicated for your righteous living because of what God has done because you're a child of God. But you, right now you're not seeing that. You're seeing the opposite of that. How do you deal with the two? Well, let's pull back the curtain and show you the day of the Lord. Mm. And you know that, You'll see some of this now, but trust in the Lord that this is all happening and will happen in his grand scheme. So mm. it's all going to be okay. Yeah. We see that played out in this, even in this um, mm. psalm, in this song. Yeah. Yeah. So like that idea that like it's been like the, what is going to happen has been revealed but and it will continue to be revealed. Correct. The longer and longer that we sit in it and, and understand and then Jesus will then come and then give it the full the full outwork, the full, con- I like the word consummation. Mm. Uh, I remember learning in Bible college about the difference between uh, VE Day, uh, which is the victory in Europe Day in World War II. That's the day, I think, I'll get off the top of my head, I think that's the day when the war officially ended, mm. when, uh, you know, the Nazis surrendered and the war ended, victory in Europe Day. But the actual coming of peace was some time after that. There were parts of Europe where there was still fighting happening for some time afterwards. Mm. And that's pretty much the same in any kind of war. There's, there might come a day where the peace is, uh, where, where the official war ends. That happened through the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ and the mm. birth of the church really in the book of in the day of Pentecost. But we are still in a, a mopping up phase, if you like. Yep. We're looking forward to that day. And the peeling back of the curtain lets us see that there is a lot going on behind the scenes. It's going to be okay. It might not look like you're getting anywhere, mm. but just trust in the bigger picture. Yep. All right. So that's a, something to keep in mind. Um, and yeah, I, you know, if you've got the ability to bookmark that bit, because I think that we'll probably come back to that and it's probably something good to reference. Yes. Even if you're going to do some of your own studies into whether it's Isaiah, Revelation, or just in general, like if you're going through and you hear that phrase. You'll to, see it over and, again in the, over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. Yep. Um, so yeah, so in so in that song, there's lots of um, 
lots of different things. It's a, it's very much a song of praise. It's very much a you know, the Lord will grant us peace, and it's very it's sort of that unlifting and probably coming out of what we went through in verse twenty five. This idea then, okay, this is a song that we will all sing. It's like that flow on from there. So we've, we've you know we've all the stuff in verse twenty five, and then we will come chapter out. Chapter twenty five, you mean? Yeah, sorry, chapter twenty five, yep. and then we will sing this. This is like the victory song. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this shows the, the the picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem comes mm. to be the place of God's kingdom on the earth, and there's there's walls around it. But you see, the walls here are taken from being literal walls to being uh, we are surrounded by the walls of God's salvation. This it's yeah. a, it's a spiritual protection yep. that's coming upon them. Yeah, and I think that's yeah, it's got some really good imagery. So we're gonna yeah, just pick out a couple of things in here. Um, just have a look that well, a couple of things that I found that was a bit more bit interesting. There's a last chunk at the end, which if you've read through before, um, or you maybe scan down and you see a, a random title down there, which we we all know my thoughts on titles at times. Yes, so, Jimmy's been very um, very avid about his thoughts yeah. on titles that the Bible writers put in there. Yeah, yeah, uh, Bible so, translators. So yeah, so verse in verse nine and ten. And this this jumped out to me more so because um, it's something I think that maybe we struggle with um, when it comes, to, but it's it's something that we find hard maybe to hand over to God. Uh, and so, like I say, verse nine: In the night we search for you; in the morning I earnestly seek you. Uh, for only when you come to judge the earth will people learn what is right. And that's that revealing. That's yes. That. So. We, we're not going to know that. Like we, no matter what we do, no matter how much, we're never going to truly learn exactly what is right. Jesus will reveal that when he comes to judge the earth. Um, and you're, but this is the one that I was like, yeah, this is speaks, I think to a lot of people. And like that question, I think about when I was a youth leader, um, the questions that you always get, they always try and throw, you know, you know, can God create a rock or a mountain that is so heavy that even he can't lift it? Things like that. Like, you know, trying to trick you into things is like, well, yes, he could, but then he could make it so that he could lift it. Like, it's like those, you know, you, it's, you know. Teenagers and their that, philosophy. Yeah. So it says, your kindness to the wicked does not make them good. Um, or, and I'll, it, although others do right, the wicked keeps doing wrong and take no notice um, of the Lord's majesty. So it's that idea that God's love is for everyone. Your kindness to the wicked does not make them good, but his kindness is still there. He still shows kindness to to them. So Ah, I see. So you're yeah. not saying it's about, oh, this God's only judgmental against the wicked. He's actually offering them kindness as well. Yeah. Yeah, good, so good it's, point. So it's that whole, like, so we talked about the, that first bit, like the judgment of the earth, which we feel as though that God should bring that judgment to the earth, like to people, like people. <laughs> against everybody be, but us. Yeah, like, <laughs> You know, they've done wrong. Like yeah. all this sort of stuff happens and, you know, be like, oh, you know, can, you know, God please. And we even pray it. Like we want to bring justice and, and judgment to to people that need to face that. Um, but we also forget that sometimes that we need to be facing that also ourselves. Um, and hopefully we do. Mm. Um, we're even if like in our reflection. And But then there's the the whole idea of the, you know, the youth group question is like why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad people, you know, have all this, you know, why do the bad people prosper and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So is that God's kindness does not make them good, but the, I think the, the idea that God's kindness is there for everyone. I think that sometimes is that, you know, 
Although others do right, the wicked keep doing wrong and take no notice of the Lord's majesty. Doesn't mean that God's going to stop loving them and doesn't mean that we should stop loving them as well. Great point. I like that. Because it could you could read these things to think that we're just desiring nothing but um, vindication and the wrath of God upon our enemies. It seems like it it's saying that, but it's a response to the fact that God is still a kind God. And if people people resist God's kindness, then all there's left for them is mm. fierce judgment, I suppose. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The yep. judgment is still there, but the love is still but there. But the love is there together. And the yeah, reason like for that. that judgment is is, is from that the, love. Is the resisting of the love of yeah. God. Yes. And there's probably some New Testament passages that seem to indicate that theology. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Yeah. So it's, again, it's some, a lot of that same stuff. Um, you'll grant us peace. Um, there's a lot of peace imagery yeah. in this, in in this, this one, song. So. It's, it, because it's interesting because it's talking about the day of the Lord will bring peace, but yep. you've just read a section where they're clearly not in peace. No. They're clearly recognizing that there is an enemy that is out to get them and that seems to be prospering and is resisting God. And yet there's this unveiling of this promise of peace. God, you will grant us peace. Mm. All we have accomplished is really from you. So there's an understanding that peace is the ultimate goal of what God wants to give to. Even if you don't face it, even if you don't experience it fully in this life, even if you die, I think it's going to say, verse 14, those Mm. we we served before are dead and gone. Their Mm. departed spirits will never return. Mm. But they are not forgotten, Lord. Yeah. Yes, because you ultimately um, <laughs> overthrow death and you, you even in death the righteous will receive peace. Yeah. And then like, yeah, so then it comes down into verse 16. Like it, again, like even though this is victory song, it says, Lord, in distress we searched for you. We prayed beneath the burden of your discipline. Like it's, you know, just the pregnant woman um, rise and cries out in pain as she gives birth. So we in your presence, Lord, we too writhe in agony, but nothing comes of our suffering. It feels like we're suffering and yeah. we're not getting anywhere. Yeah. We're um, suffering yeah. in, Lord. We have not um, given salvation to the earth, nor brought life into the world, but those who die in the Lord will live. Their bodies will rise again. With you know, That's very New Testament. Um, uh, those uh, who sleep in the earth uh, will rise up and sing for joy uh, for your life giving light will fall like dew on all your people in the place of the dead. Mm. Oh, I, they, I should have just let those verses do what I was trying to say because mm. that's much more vivid, this sense mm. of peace that comes, ultimate peace that comes even even for those who die in the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then we get to uh, the the title I don't like. So if you're reading in the NLT, uh, Restoration for Israel, uh, was it the New King, New King James, James Version had a better says, title? It says... Take refuge from the coming judgment. Yeah. And then if you look in NIV, NRSV, no title. No title in any so of those. It's it's a probably an unneeded title, but I think it's just... It's sort th- of similar. It's probably just that it seems like the song has ended. The song has ended and this is a separation. But Yes. Or it could be, you know, an add-on. It could be anything to where it's not exactly... Um, yeah, because there's a lot of imagery like we even went through before. There's a lot of references to a lot of – it's like they've got a whole bunch of ideas have just been referenced in through here. Yep. And so it's just a – um, you know, whether it's through, you know, Joel, there was some uh, – Job, there's Isaiah, there's – what was the other one? There was another one as well. Uh, oh, lots of yeah. New Testament stuff was – old New Testament Jude was referencing out of this passage. So this – but this section here has got a lot. And so it's 
I think it's good to look at because it again it is something's a little bit different, um, and that title again can just sort of throw you off because it's not just about restoration for Israel can probably throw you off a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Mm. So we'll just read it out. It's just two verses. Uh, Go home, my people, and lock your doors. Hide yourself for a little while until the Lord's anger has passed. Look, the Lord is coming from heaven to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will no longer hide. Those who have been killed, they will be brought out for all to see. Mm. After we sing this big song of like praise to the Lord, and then we come to this bit here, it can be maybe a little bit jarring because I suppose it's a bit more strongly worded, I would say, um, in the way that it sort of comes across in terms of it's saying, go home, lock your doors until the long Lord's anger has passed. It's just like, well, why, what's, what's happening? You know, it's this, like it. What does it speak to you of? Oh, it's. It, oh. It's Exodus Passover it, yeah, in the imagery, that, isn't it? And then I think actually it does actually reference it Exodus. It has to reference Exodus. That's clearly what it's talking about. Uh, yeah. So in, yeah, well, there you go. First verse, Exodus 12. That's where it's looking at. So go, um. Yeah, the first half of, of yeah, speaking about Exodus. Go home, lock your doors, yep. hide yourselves until the Lord's anger. I mean, that is yep. that is the Exodus imagery right there. Yep. So let's think about that. The Exodus is about God's deliverance of his people by bringing judgment upon those who are inflicting hardship upon yep. God's people. Same imagery. God, God, Isaiah is reminding them that in the end, God will bring you out from that underneath that judgment. Yep. And in the meantime... You don't have to do anything. Just go home mm. and eat a Passover meal. Go yeah. home and and trust that I will in my day, in that day, I will yeah. bring about the righteous. I will vindicate the righteous. Yeah. Look, the Lord is coming from heaven to punish the people of the earth um, for their sins. The earth, the earth will no longer hide those who have been killed. They will be brought out for all to see. It's like a quote from Second Peter, which quotes Enoch: mm. "The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy angels." Um, yeah, this sense of God's coming to to right the wrongs of the world. Yeah. That is that that is the vivid imagery of the day of the Lord. And, and all these writings, if we can understand, yes, they they're written through a lens that seems violent, but it it's not. It's violent by our standards, and it is violent. Mm. Don't, don't, I'm not saying don't water it down. I'm just saying let's just recognise that was the prevailing understanding of justice. Yeah. So let's remind ourselves of that and go. This is about God righting wrongs and vindicating the righteous. Yep. Yeah, that's what's going on in this passage. All right, right, where to now, mate? Um, we are going to I think it's 30, Isaiah 30, 32. 32. Yes, it is Isaiah 32. I might have sounded a little bit like a... Is it 32 when we finished the last one? It definitely is. <laughs> so here we go. Um, so... The title, which actually is not a bad title. It's a good title, this one. Isaiah's Ultimate Deliverance, but there is a few twists and turns along the way. So, Yeah, ultimate has that sense of it's coming eventually. it's coming eventually. (laughs) There's some Uh, twists and turns on the way. It's good to like it. About 20 or so verses. Yes. uh, So starting at verse 1, and this is where our first – wait, what for this verse? Um, This chapter, sorry. Um, Look, a righteous king is coming – and honest princes will rule under him. So, 
probably our readers will straight away think, oh, that's a prophecy about Jesus. Hmm. And and yes, it is. It's a messianic prophecy. Yep. It shows this developing understanding of Messiah. We need to realize they didn't automatically get a full picture of Messiah. It was developed over this time, pretty much from hmm. Isaiah's time forward. They started to get a picture of this one who would come. But the context seems to be the people are living without a righteous king and with on, with dishonest princes, and it's hard. And so uh, in the previous chapters, we kind of more talked about the, the other nations that bring judgment, uh, the other nations that were, tr- were oppressing God's people. Yep. In this chapter, there is still an oppressor, but mm. the oppressor is from within, not from without. Yep. So the oppressor here is probably King Ahaz or one of the other wicked kings of mm. Judah at the time, who he and his elites were oppressing the poor. And they had a dis, an unrighteous king and dishonest princes. And so there's to a people who are being oppressed. And, and the picture is during that time that the kings and the, the, those in the, the royal household completely just used the poor for their purposes. They farmed the land, taxed them highly, lived the fat, comfortable life. You're going to see that with all this picture of all these rich, wealthy women laying around on, you know, being treated, treated, uh, you know, having everything given to them. Yep. This complete oppression of the poor and the people of God are crying out for that. And that starts with, hey, God's Isaiah is saying, yep. there is a righteous king coming. There is a day when the when the princes will be honest, when those who rule will rule with justice. Yeah. And then, and we'll go through, like, we're, we're going to sort of jump ahead a little bit, but like, it's again, like it talks away Australia, like that, you know, each one, like, so talking about the, the king and yep. then the and honest the princes, princes yep. will be like a shelter from the wind, refuge from the storm. So it's like, again, it's this imagery. It does that foretelling the imagery of God being that refuge yes. that we talked about earlier. Great. And um, in this case, it's his representatives, his people yep. who are who are bringing that refuge. And which, you know, if we look at it from our, just like our Western New Testament eyes, is that we would say, well, that's the church. That's yes. Jesus. Yep. Like we, God's we are God's people. We are his representatives mm-hmm. in the world. And so we are we could then potentially see ourselves as those honest princes to rule under. I think we should aim and aspire to be that because that's God's yep. promise for his people, not just hmm. the church, but always God's people throughout time has always been that they would be a refuge from the storm, that they hmm. would right the wrongs and they would bring justice and care for the broken and the needy. Yeah. Yep. So then it goes through pretty much from verse th- 3 to verse 8, um, and everyone who has eyes will be able to see the truth. Everyone who has ears will be able to hear it. And then it talks about even hotheads will understand, seek understanding those who stammer speak plainly and goes through and just talks about, you know, fools um, speak foolish, make evil, evil plans, practice ungodliness, spread false teachings, deprive food from the hungry, water from the thirsty. Um, and then it just goes, and the light, so it talks about all these things then. That the, that the unrighteous, the unrighteous oppressors are bringing. Are bringing. Yes. Um, but generous people plan to do what is generous. This is verse eight, and they stand firm in their generosity. Mm. So it's talking about even though these people, which is again probably referencing those, you know, the you know not so good king, yep. the not so great princes, yep. that you know they're going to do all these things. But those who are generous, so the you know there the are, righteous king and the righteous some that will be generous, yep. will be, uh, stand firm in their generosity. Uh, and then into verse nine. Listen, you now. This is not against it, the women. This not is against women. This it's is a picture idea, of the idea, idea that the women were the often time. laying around, um, you know, in comfort. Many of these women, mm. yeah. Well, like a lot of kings, you know, even um, Jewish kings would have had concubines oh, totally, and all, all of that stuff. So yep. it's you know they would have had this, this big harem of you know all yep. these women that are just sitting in luxury, 
mm-hmm. doing whatever they want to do. So it's it reference to those sorts of Let me of just images. clarify that. We're not saying that being a member of a, a harem was necessarily an, a position of oh, lack no. of oppression. No. Uh, it's probably in many cases, yes, there was definitely comforts. They were mm. kept in comforts, but that's not to say that they weren't all, they were all living in the high life. They weren't, yep. a lot of them were taken from their homes and turned into yep. the harem. Um, but I think the picture here is, I think, uh, I think of like, maybe I'm, I'm getting, I'm jumping ahead 600 years to the mm. Romans but the same concept you often see or Herod sitting around and all the, the princes and the, the, the daughters of the houses of the house living in consummate comfort compared yep. to everybody else. I think that's the picture they're trying to okay, yep. go with. Um, women who just uh, are part of the royal elite household. Yep. So it's, um, yeah, so verse nine, listen, you women who lie around in ease, listen to me, you um, who are so smug in a short time, just a little more than a year, you uh, careless ones will suddenly begin to care. Your fruit crop will fail and the harvest will never take place. Um, should we keep going down before we come back? Ah, oh, yeah. it's up to you. Yeah, keep going. Um, Tremble, you women of ease, throw off your complacency, strip off your pretty clothes and put on burlap to show your grief. Okay, yep. so there's this prophecy that something's going to happen in a little more than a year. So there is a time coming. When you're living in comfort right now, but watch out. Mm. And you see this time and time again in Isaiah and Ezekiel because they, they, they are writing at a time that's leading to um, an overthrow by oppressive powers. So in Isaiah's case, there is a Syrian army coming against him. In Ezekiel's case, it's the Babylonian argument, uh, uh, army coming against them. But there's this often this time of right now you're in comfort, but the enemy is right on your footstool. The judgment of God is mm. is right there. And it could be, you know, in less, a little more than a year, all this comfort's going to go because the Assyrian army is going to invade the land, steal your crops, and suddenly you're living in fat comfort in Jerusalem. Mm. You're not going to have all this fruit. You're not going to have all this harvest. Get ready. And so it's a pronouncement of uh, impending judgment. Yep. Um, Yep. And so that's what goes through from here. And then there's like a, and one of the hyperlinks from these verses takes us to verse 37 which we don't actually go over today. Chapter 37? Chapter 37, sorry. I'm saying verse or chapter. Yeah. yeah, which is the opposite of that, which is yes. the, it's to, when Isaiah delivers the same words for the same prophecy, but it's the it's the, the, it's the reversal the other side. of, it's yeah. the opposite of this. Yep. So this is a pronouncement of, of the Assyrians coming to, um, to conquer. Mm. Well, ultimately it actually says they came – Assyrians did invade the land during the time. This is probably written during the time of, uh, of Ahaz, King Ahaz. His son Hezekiah, who became a righteous king, um, but it's the famous story of the um, Assyrian army embanking themselves and putting the siege city under siege. And mm. all that basically, they've conquered all of Judah except for Jerusalem. All the mm. people from the farms have all come inside Jerusalem. It's the last stronghold, and um, it seems like they're hanging on for dear life inside mm. the city of the walls of Jerusalem. And they have this, um, Isaiah gives them this prophecy in 37, which actually reverses this and says in a little more than a year, yep. you'll eat the crops. Mm. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, resist the, the, um, attack of Assyria. I'm going to defeat the attack of Assyria and you will resist the crops. So it's a complete reversal, but the concept is one is the coming judgment. And yep. then because of their, um, unrighteous living, and then in chapter 37, five chapters later, it's the coming deliverance because yep. of Hezekiah and the people's righteous living. Yep. And it's a uh, there is a foreshadowing to that coming out the other side to the um, at the end of this 
um, this chapter here. Yes, there is. Yep. Um, but it's, I think we were going to go from 16, but having a look probably from 15, it's, it says, um, until at last the spirit Ooh, is poured okay. out on us from heaven, then the wilderness will become fer, um, fer, a fertile field and the fertile field will yield bountiful crops. Going into verse 16, justice will rule in the wilderness and righteous in the fertile field and the righteousness will bring peace. Yes, it will bring quietness um, and comf- uh, confidence forever. Um, my people live safely, quietly at home. They will be at rest. Even in the forest, even if the forest should be destroyed and the city torn down, the Lord will greatly bless his people. Uh, they, uh, Wherever they plant seed, beautiful crops will spring up. Their cattle and donkeys will graze freely. Ooh, I like the fact you brought in verse 15. Because I, I was like, I'm getting, I was cheating myself up to go straight to 16. And then I went, Ooh. hang on, what's that about? What's just above that bountiful crops? I'm like, okay, go a little bit higher. Well, oh, let yes. me go to a verse before that. So mm. they just pronounce this impending judgment mm. upon the palace. Yep. Basically, it's upon the palace. Yep. Verse 14 says, the palace and the city will be deserted. Mm. The busy towns will be empty because of this judgment of the Assyrians. Mm. While donkeys will frolic and flocks will graze in the empty forts and watchtowers. This picture of complete desolation. Mm. Until, Until at last the spirit is poured out. Oh, you know what I love about that? I'm doing some study for my masters at the moment about the spirit. Mm. And uh, the Spirit of God, here it is right here, is the Spirit of God is seen time and time again, the Holy Spirit, as the creative force of the Godhead. The, mm. the Spirit hovered over the, the waters. The, waters. Yep. the Spirit was involved in every time there's a, a new creation c- account where God, this picture that repeats itself in Scripture of it's desolation, the exile, mm. it's the Spirit that brings about new life. I never, like, I, 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 I've heard the, like, a sim, like a, an idea about that before, but I've never even, like, thought about thinking, yeah. yeah. Every single time it talks about something creative or something about, you yep. know, the birth of new, something new, yep. the spirit is Or well, the there. restoration of God's yep. plan. So so God births mm. the creation account. Humans mess it up and yep. end up in exile, basically exiled from Eden. We see the Israelites exiled from the homeland. Every time it's always the spirit that new creates, that yep. recreates, that brings them back from exile. Mm. That's what's happening here. It's, a, yep. it's this promise of... It's, you feel like you're going to be in exile, but the spirit will be poured out and you will be recreated again into a land of abundance. This yep. is Eden language here. Mm. The, the crops will, it's all seed language and crop language and yep. animals. It's it's like a new Eden. It's a promise of recreated Eden. Yeah. And that's, and so that like, that's that, like, and that idea of peace comes from that pretty much is, and then, but as we see, like it's, it, it talks about in a year and then it's saying that all these things are going to happen until at last the sport is yeah there's no there's not in a year there's no there's no time, time frame, frame for the be. restoration so as we see it's it's going to be a different king it'll be the king's son yep and it'll be well into his reign where yep. it comes out the other side yep. and so, ultimately even then it was never for this no. is the story of how the scriptures roll on historically is mm. that there's always exile God's mm. people are always waiting for that final vindication of yep. new creation and that's ultimately we, we look forward to it in uh, small um, accounts throughout history. We're looking for the deliverance from our challenges in, in Australia right now, a deliverance, peace in the world, all the while aware that there is yet a final pouring out of the spirit. Yep. yep. Yeah. So I think that's that's a perfect wrap up. That's for that great. Chapter, I think. Yeah. Yep. What's the next chapter? Uh, we're going now, leaving Isaiah. So that was our last one in Isaiah. No. No, there should be that one more. Isn't it? No, we're going to thirty-five. Thirty-five. First. Yep. Thought there was one more. Yep. Thirty-five.
Isaiah 35. Uh, yeah, so we're going to – this one is really just a wrap-up of the concepts of everything that we've spoken about today and like Isaiah – and so what I'm going to, what we're going to happen, I'm going to read through it and then Rowan's going to sort of speak to it and just sort of, and pick out some of the imagery and the, and the things that we've, we've spoken about today. So I'll just jump straight in. Even in, even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and, um, and blossom with spring crocuses. Uh, type of flower. Uh, yep. Yep. Little flowers that appear in the desert. Yes, there will be an abundance of flower. Oh, there we go. Abundance of flowers <laughs> and singing and joy. Uh, the desert will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel um, or the plain of Sharon. There, uh, there the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With, the new, with this news, strengthen those who have, have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool of, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds will... Um, and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And the great road will go through the once deserted land. It will be named the highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It will be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. That was an old song, that one. Probably before your time, Jimmy. Before my time. Yeah, I grew up with that one in the early 90s. Come with singing under Zion. Um, This this is interesting. This, This... Prophecy, probably for most of us that have just heard it, it probably sounds like it makes enough sense anyway. I and mean, the title is Hope for Restoration. So it's this promise of God restoring all things. And I think, as you said, it sums up a lot of the concepts we've just talked about. We've talked about God's judgment against those who oppress God's people and that God's people feel like they're suffering, but they stay stay the course because in the end there's a unveiling and there's a, there's a victory and there's a justice that's coming. And this is like... Uh, a final summary of all of that. It focuses probably it's easier to read because it focuses less on what we see as the the violent just justice mm. against the unjust, unjust, and more about the the vindication of the righteous, the hope for the righteousness. Um, but I think it's just so. But let me just dig into it a little bit for a couple of moments, and let's pull out some of the metaphors that are used, which might intuitively we might understand them, like wilderness and and um, beasts and highways and. Mm and springs in the desert and all this kind of stuff. So that, that's all there, but let's just un, unpack it a little bit more because this is all kind of hyperlinked back to a bit like we said in the last passage where the spirit was going to bring restoration. It was all Eden language. This yep. is also Eden language, flowers, yep. abundance, wilderness. This yep. is all Genesis creation language here. 
So it starts with, even in the wilderness, even the wilderness and the desert will be glad in those days. So when you see the word wilderness or desert, it's a physical place in southern Israel that leads down out into the Sinai Peninsula and obviously ultimately to the Mm. Arabian Peninsula, where it's just nothing lives out in there in the Arabian Peninsula. But the southern wilderness, the Negev of Israel, not that, well, it's basically where Gaza is, really. Mm. Um, That's right against the, that's right on the outskirts of the wilderness. It happens to be on the coast, but head east a few kilometers, you're pretty much heading into the southern wilderness. And it was a place that was very barren, not much grew there. Um, and it became known to all the Israelites as a, a metaphor for uh, the place where God wasn't, disorder and chaos. Nothing grows there. So there's there's multiple metaphors used for this chaos. Uh, it's two, really, two main metaphors used in the Old Testament for cha- for chaos, or the place where sin rules and God's justice isn't where there isn't God's order in the world. And that's the wilderness and the sea. Makes sense because both of those aren't really inhabitable Mm. by humans. And so Genesis account, God, uh, you know, has this barren wilderness. The spirit of God is hovering over the sea, over this barren wilderness of ocean, and God creates and orders out of that. And so there is a picture that's saying it might feel like you're in the wilderness, but when God's restoration comes, he's even going to make the wilderness Mm. a place of life. Yep. So it might seem like it's a wasteland now, but there's going to be flowers uh, developing in this place. The deserts are going to come become as as beautiful as the mountains of Lebanon, which are up in the north. Lots of rainfall, beautiful. Mount Hermon is one of the mountains of Lebanon. Beautiful forests and greenery and springs. And it's just a picture of complete restoration. Yep. And so this brings a great hope to the people. Oh, God's going to turn even the worst of life into a place of habitation. And then le- later on down, he says, in this wilderness, how, how are you going to get through this wilderness? Right now you feel like you're in a wilderness. Well, I'm going to put a highway in the middle of the wilderness mm-hmm. and you're going to walk on it or walk on a highway or we would say drive on a highway, but you're, you're on this highway and nothing of that wilderness, nothing of that barrenness is going to touch you. You're going to be able to walk straight through it in safety and provision. And then it uses some other metaphors that talk about walking on this highway. And it says that lions and beasts will not be able to go there. Only the righteous, only those who are are, are experiencing God's vindication. It says mm. evil-minded people, verse, uh, verse 8, yep. a great road will go through that once deserted land. It will be named the highway of holiness and evil-minded people will travel, won't be able to travel on it. It will only be for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk on its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it, and they shall return with singing unto Zion. Mm. So there's a sense in which these evil-minded people are kind of linked with these beasts. The, it, the beasts in the Old Testament, Daniel and other places, are uh, a prophetic declaration of humanity's worst behaviors. Uh, in God says to Cain, says sin is like a, an evil beast crouching, crouching at the, the door. door. Yeah. And when humanity gives way to its worst uh, inclinations, we become beasts. And so that's how the Old Testament writers understood beasts as these the pictures of the worst of humanity. And God is saying, hey, you might feel like you're in the wilderness and there's beasts on every turn, but I'm going to put you on a highway. And in the end, you're going to walk into a place of blessing and there ain't no beasts in mm-hmm. that on that highway. Yep. So it has this beautiful, rich, metaphorical, unveiling apocalypse of the future. Yep. 
that can encourage them despite the hardship they're in. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to that? No, that's that's it. All right. We're going to go now. We're going to go to now. We're going to go to Job. Job Job nineteen. Nineteen. Job chapter 19. Okay, so we're going to do this a little bit different than what we've done um, with kind others. Handpicking one chapter out of 40-something and plunking yep. it out so we'll, we won't do go into great depth on the chapter, will we? No. So, um, so yeah, chapter 19 is a response to Job's response to one of his friends. And pretty much through this whole thing, he's saying, you know, all like, you know, God's come against me. My family hates me. Like there's even one point where it's like my breath is repulsive to my wife and, um, you he's know, not my, having a good day. My ghost friends detest me. Like, and he's just saying that God has come against him. Um, and all of these things, um, and like, you know, it's what it's 29 verses and 26 of them is him just pretty much, well, or maybe 24 of them are him just laying out all this stuff that he feels as though that is come against him, that God's placed in front of him, that, you know, that pretty much because of God, God's hand against him, all of this has happened. And then he comes up with these three verses um, from verse 25. Which seemingly are out of the blue in the context of everything else. Suddenly he goes from seeming like he's blaming God to some profound statement of faith. Yeah, where he says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. And then he has one final rebuke at his friend saying, how dare you go on? Persecuting saying it's his own fault. Um, so it's just, it's the, it's a, I suppose a snippet of a lot of those conversations that happen through Job. Um, but the reason for, for this, I suppose, is probably where we probably, Lend out. So, like, Rowan's going to give a sort of bit of an overview of of Job. Very brief. Yeah, very brief. Because we yeah, could be well, here for a while. But um, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll do it. So, in this one verse, Darlene Check pulled it out in the nineties and turned it into "My Redeemer Lives" and jumped up and down on stage and did somersaults and <laughs> sing all sorts of pirouettes on stage. Yeah. Uh, but this one verse is a statement of faith in the midst of a dark time yep. uh, when he says it has a revelation that, that God will redeem in the end and that even though he's going through all this and he's feeling all this pain and confusion and feeling like I've done everything right, why is this happening to me? He has this moment where he goes, okay, but in the end God is going to bring peace. In the end it's going to be okay. And it's, then he shuts back down again. And that, you hmm. see this the way Job is written. So let's just really give um, an overview of the book of Job because it's a deeply misunderstood book. Mm. And I just said to Jimmy in the break between the chapters, we, I was thinking that we would touch, do the whole book of Job next year. But I think from memory, as we put together our be- reading plan, which will be five chapters a week, we won't be doing the book of Job because um, just didn't fit in. It's a long, it's a long thing, and it would have taken up too much time. Um, but so I think we we will skip it. But for now, it's worth just giving a bit of an understanding because people get confused mm. by this book. If you ask the average person, what's it about? They say, oh, it's about suffering, which it is to a degree, yep. but they come at it with the premise that the book is somehow going to answer the question of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> and you get to the end of the book and you think, 
oh, well, it didn't really answer the question of why good things happen to bad things happen to good people. It yeah. seems like that's the question, the youth question you yeah. mentioned earlier. That's that's the premise we're coming at. That is, uh, the, the book is not trying to answer that question with the level of um, the degree of accuracy or, or um, in, firmed up as we would like it to. It's yep. much more fluid than that. So essentially what happens is, the book starts with um, Joe being a righteous person who seems to live for the Lord. God likes him. He, he, he sacrifices to God. He, he gives to the poor. He does all the things that we know are good things. And we all know that intuitively those things are good. The problem we have is that we instinctively put Job on this complete pedestal, which he isn't really even on um, in, in reality because we say, oh, what a righteous man he is. That's great, but we all know that you know, even our best efforts are like filthy rags to God. So Mm. the issue was not that he was good enough to get to God. The issue was that he had a, he and his friends had a misunderstanding of what was required for a relationship with God. And they had this belief that, um, that a good God plus their good lives should equal a good work should equal a good life. Mm. If you, if God is good and I live good life, I do good things. I should have a good life. So along comes Job, who has a, he believes in a good God. He's done good things, and now he's got a problem because he's suffering in life. And the whole book is this question of trying to unpack how can we not experience a good life if we have been doing good things and have a good God. And so Job's problem all the way through is, Lord, I believe you're a good God, but I've done good things and I'm not experiencing a good life. So he's constantly complaining to God going, God, what have I done? I want to defend myself. I've lived a good life. Why aren't I experiencing, I've done good things. Why aren't I experiencing a good life? And he's wrestling at moments. You think he thinks God's not good because he knows he's been good, but he's just got this tension because he's assuming that his good life should guarantee his good work should guarantee a good life. And so the accusations of his three friends in one form or another that we see constantly repeat, and each of them gets like three times they they accuse him, they have the same belief. And their belief is, well, God's good and your life isn't good. So you're obviously doing something good. (laughs) Exactly. So they make up, I think it's Job 22, they start making up all these things that he might, you must have done this and you must have done that. Mm. And the truth is Job hadn't done any of those things. So there's this formula and it's this wrestling with, Life is hard. So it's back to this thing that we've been talking about all the way through so far today in this podcast is that sometimes, even for God's people, life is hard. Yeah. How do I wrestle with the fact that I'm not seeing a fullness that I think I should be seeing? How come I'm not living the abundant Eden life? I feel like I'm in the wilderness. Yeah. Life, I'm doing the right things and all that. And so that's the tension of this whole book all the way through. Now, what God ultimately will try to do as he wraps up the book in the later chapters is he will present a slightly different nuanced case on that. And that is that all of your good works don't guarantee mm. a good life. What I'm more interested in, Job, is not your um, not your good works for good works sake, but a relationship with you. Yep. And I, I would even posit that when God is baiting the devil in the earlier chapters and saying, go on, have a go at him, mm. God is actually allowing the devil to do his worst for the purpose of correcting some of Job's theology. I don't think Job was perfect in some ways. Mm. I think he had this sense of, I'll be good enough and yeah. I'll avoid bad things happening. Mm. And God's trying to say him, show him what we all know as 
mm. Protestant evangelical Christians is that even our good is not good enough. Yeah. What, what we need is a, a relationship and a reliance on the goodness of God and mm. the trust in the the um, the ultimate wisdom of God that even in hard times, God is still going to work in your life. And it's when Job comes to that revelation of that, that he experiences restoration because now it's not based on his good works, but it's based on his trust in the goodness of God. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how, that's mm. a, a framework to read the book of Job. Yeah. And you could see that Job was starting, or maybe not necessarily starting to understand what was actually happening, but you could see that Job's faith was starting to stand out. Yeah, in this in moment. That, like, is that even though that for 24 verses I've done nothing but, you know, just pile on God and my family and my friends that, you know, you're all coming against me. But for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. Like, it's just the, he's starting to see the real revelation of who God is and what, like, what's most important. Not, yes, not just great. what he's been doing on the earth. Yep. Like he was, like they said, like he was a righteous man. He did all the great things. He did all the sacrifices. He did all these great things. But it was that, like, and and he believed this. But it was yes. it was it wasn't that he didn't believe it. It was just that he didn't necessarily. It was like again, like that that slight correction is that it wasn't because of the good things he was doing that was that like that's why he was to believe these things. It was that you know he believed these things and therefore he was doing the good. You things. You got it. I think yeah. that's that's that the, whole faith the and works thing. Faith and works exactly. It was a reversal of that, and there was a little bit of this works-based mentality in his belief, which would have been common in that day. Yeah. We all have it. Early on in the chapters, he when when things go against him, because he, he says he offers, he used to offer sacrifices every day on behalf of one of his kids mm. in case the kids had done something wrong. This yeah. sense of almost like I'm offering on behalf of works. And then, mm. and then he says when it all goes wrong, he says something like, my greatest fear has happened to me. And you get an insight into his heart. Oh, yeah. his heart wasn't really trust in God. Mm. It was trust in his goodness. Yeah. It was trust that if I do enough and I'm a good enough person, yeah. that I will be God will be obligated well, to bless that me. There was fear in there. There was fear deep-seated in there. Yeah. I, I need to be good enough to to earn God's goodness. Mm. And not just for me, for my family. For my family as well. And so instead of having that trust that, you know, that I – I love God enough that he's going to protect me and my family regardless of my situation. But while I am in abundance and while I'm able to, I'm going to do all these things to bless God. Yes, that's right. And other than this sense, sense that it all ultimately comes from God. Mm. And so we, he's wrestling with this. This is, this is a moment where the, like the curtain goes back. He goes, oh, he's still, he's even in the midst of his pain. He's still got this anguish of mm. this sense of that there's a deep-seated faith in God there. And yeah. what we see in Job all the way through is a, an unveiling and a wrestling with some of this. Yep. It's really, it's really the book of Job is philosophy. Mm. It's how do we find meaning in life? So philosophers love this book for that reason. There's, whether Christian or otherwise, they love this book because it's a deep, rich philosophical book about the meaning of life and the mm. meaning of pain in life and the hardship and all that kind of stuff. And so if you read it with that, and you've you got to avoid getting bogged down between about chapters, you know, six and 25 or something where it just is speech after speech, but it's all very, very dense poetry, Yeah, but it is written as a philosophy book mm. yeah, to help people trust God. Yeah. Um, and in the end, this, this moment here, this, this is a moment. I wouldn't be surprised if there's chiasms in here that point to this moment, but there's lots of chiasms in, in, in the book of Job that point towards certain things. It's very dense poetry, but I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't a pivotal moment that this is promised that no matter how things look in the yeah. end, Messiah, the Lord will stand upon the earth and he will put, he will right every wrong. Yeah. 
He will bring justice. Yeah. Which is the whole thing, our theme of peace. So yep. other than a little bit of confusing <laughs> stuff in this chapter in Job, I think I'm pretty happy with those Isaiah scriptures because I think I've yep. picked up the whole concept of peace pretty well with that selection. Yeah, and no, I think it's it, – and then hopefully then – and as well, um, it's that like – and what people can struggle with is that you, you're balancing Old Testament and New Testament. How, how do you hold the Old Testament and the New Testament together? And I think that's where – is that the themes that are ultimately of God – are through the Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament isn't just this history that we use as a lens to view you through the New Testament is that there are very great teachings that will then reference to the New Testament because the New Testament readers are going, that's where they're pulling from. That's, that's the, their source material that's is, is that. So yep. it's opportunity to then see, okay, the idea of peace and we haven't really touched on it's Advent and like yes, and the idea of peace yeah. is that, you know, it's this foreshadowing of what is to come, the celebration to come. Mm-hmm. The I pretty much and the language of the Messiah, the messianic language and the the foreshadowing of, of Jesus in, yes, in Isaiah. Even in Isaiah and here there, in Job, and the Messiah in, standing up all the, yeah, the Redeemer Lord standing lives, up on the yeah. earth. Yeah, redeemer. That's all Jesus' language. Yeah. And so the idea of of Advent then is that, you know, this the four weeks of Advent, the hope, peace, love, joy. Yeah, that's in that order. Yeah, that you come through, you know, it's like the hope um, of what Jesus is going to bring, the peace that when when he comes to the earth, that the peace that he well, brings like the angels with him. bring you good news of great joy and mm. peace and yep. he will bring peace to the earth and he's the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. Yep. yep. And then the love and then, you know, like, you know, mm. the, the fact is the, the ultimate act of love yes. um, from God was to send his only son yep. to earth to be a human, then to act out the next greatest bit of love was to die on a cross for our sins and then, again, yep. the joy, the joy that, the, that one birth brings, the birth of our Messiah and the joy that the people would have experienced and we get to experience that the joy of that and then the joy then even though out of the darkest times that we, he then raises again, rises again to fulfill all that prophecy and all the um, the promises of God, and the joy that that brings. That's so it. that's that's what Avon is, and like it's I think, the ark. It's yeah. it's a celebration of the ark of the story of the Bible from um, from order to chaos back to order again. Yeah, yeah. And that, so this these four the four weeks and hope like we're in the second week now um, is that 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 preparation for that celebration at Christmas of the, the, this ultimate act, which is the, the crux of, um, of the beginning of that. Like, so you've got the Christmas and then Easter is that you've got this celebration of the life of Jesus, Jesus being born and, and that, and all that entails in that. And this is the, this time where we set aside in Advent to prepare for that celebration mm-hmm. so that each year we get this opportunity to sit through these themes. Yep. That's great. And really get ready. And I think that Isaiah, and it's probably been perfect, Isaiah, and then this, this Job passage, especially with that verse 25, is really that perfect idea of peace and, and prophecy setting us up for... Um, for the Messiah. For the Messiah. For the Messiah that we celebrate at Christmas. Mm. That's excellent. All right. That's a good thought. I like it. All right. We're going to head over to the New Testament now and into dum, 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 the book of Revelation. Revelation. Dum, 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 dum. No, that's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Revelation chapter 12. A lovely Christmas story. Yes. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, a lot of the imagery here is very much the imagery that you will see from the uh, yeah story of uh, Jesus' birth. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah, that leads up to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a very very um, apocalyptic, weird, nuanced yes. way. But it is actually the Christmas story. I think most scholars think. Yeah, so it's yeah a story of a, a woman and a dragon. So a woman who is holding, who is pregnant, and then, yep, pretty much is chased by a dragon and then goes and seeks re- refuge and, you know, pl- God placed a, a section for her in the wilderness to be safe and, yeah, it's just this whole idea of, and you know, was it and then nine months and then... It's not your typical nat- yeah. nativity story, is it? No, no. Yeah, so if you don't stick this one in your front yard, you <laughs> probably get a bit of a... <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Let's turn this into the nativity story. Yeah. The dragon and a dragon woman and a baby. And a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the irony of it is it is really the mm. nativity story, just told differently. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Put this in your front yard. Yeah, well, uh, well, that's it's Christmas great. time, so I guess. Yeah, that's the, um, yeah so <laughs> this one here, like that, and it's going to be the same through a lot of Revelation um, and the ones with <laughs> the verses we're going through. Yeah, the chapters we're going through, sorry, is that, yeah, we're not going to be able to go anywhere near as deep as probably what some people may like. Oh, no. That's and, right. Um, probably won't answer probably create the questions. more questions yeah, than we create. And we'll more. probably just have to find it. We have to keep ourselves on track because there are way more. And look, I don't know the answers. That's what I said earlier mm. on. I'm still very much on a journey. And there's so much rich imagery in this that mm. everyone warrants a rehash back into the Old Testament and then read yeah. the chapters of the Old Testament to find out what the context is. So we can't yeah. do that. There's hyperlinks everywhere to every like it's yeah. just it it's and it's like oh I suppose it's, it's the beauty of scripture is that you like you, you don't you can't take it all in from one re, like from nah. one passing nah. like you can't just read through it and be like yep no worries that makes sense. Um, maybe even, what we can do – actually, I'm just thinking out loud here because maybe what we can do is with Revelation 12, we can do a little bit of this and then we won't necessarily need to do it in all the subsequent chapters because yeah. Revelation 12 does a bit of this for us itself when it explains yeah. who the dragon is and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So maybe we can put – if we do a little bit of that here, yeah. we can kind of put some tools into people's hands so that then they can go and do yeah. that themselves and look at the links to Old Testament passages and contexts yeah. and so on because it's so – Every virtually every verse of the book of Revelation takes you back into the, the Old, Old Testament. Testament. Yep. So yep. if you if I like, I would suggest that either you have a really good if you're going to go through Revelation, have a really good study Bible. Yeah. Um, that has all of the references to each of the different verses that it, like where each verse is pretty much linked to a different verse in the Old Testament or wherever. And it's also linked to a lot of first century. Um, historical understanding, like these mm. coins that represent Domitian, who mm. was the Roman emperor, which is clearly referenced here. There's all kinds. There's references to King Nero, to Emperor Nero. Mm. It's not just Old Testament. It's actually yep. stuff that made sense. I mean, it's actually the Book of Enoch, first Book of Enoch, is which was very much shaped the first century Christian and Jewish thought. Mm. Even though it's not in our Bible, it's in the Catholic Bible. Is this is dense with reference to first Enoch? So there's lots yep. of references. That stuff. So yeah, have that there. Like if you've got a chance to eat, like obviously a quick way, if you've got like a, whether it's the Bible app or you've got a, a, um, an online version, yep. find one that has a lot of those tags. So for me, I'm looking in, so I've got, um, a Bible software called Logos. Yep. Um, yeah, there's actually a free version of that, which you can actually view online. So, um, I haven't actually dived into that because I've, I've, 
you know, a long time ago I got the paid version yes, and you get to I keep paid it forever. as well. So, yep. um, and you, from there, like say NIV has all of the little hyperlinks. So where NLT and NRSV and a couple of others didn't have a lot of those. So um, if you get the opportunity, like NIV I, I, NIV I wonder if the, the NIV might have it within its regular book text as well. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. I would say um, as you read the book of Revelation, and, you know, especially those of you who um, have been raised on Left Behind, probably put that aside for reading the book of Revelation. It was one view. Nothing wrong with recognizing it as a, a view that's worth investigation. However, when it comes to the book of Revelation, and I was actually looking at this just uh, in preparation for this podcast, and I just thought, I'm just going to see if I start typing in book of Revelation and, and see what comes up. Almost exclusively, you will get in YouTube videos, you'll get teaching from... Uh, church, American church pastors who are teaching the left behind dispensationalist view. Mm. And that's what I learned in Bible college. And they're teaching it like it's absolute, the only way to interpret it. And that's what I learned. So now I'm in the process of going, okay, I can't just do that because that just because most of the American church has taught this view doesn't mean historically it's been the most common view and mm. way to interpret revelation. And it's not. So I'm forcing myself to search for quote, non-dispensationalist view, just other view, other perspectives and ways of interpreting the the book of Revelation that fit with other contexts other than just the one that most of Americans and therefore lots of Australian Pentecostals and evangelicals have been taught. Yep. Um, I, I'm not going to say, you know, what, not telling you what you should or shouldn't believe on this. I'm just saying be open to other perspectives. And as I have done that, I've come to realize that my view was quite narrow-minded and somewhat arrogant to think that suddenly the, the book is to be totally understood in my context after 2,000 years, suddenly I'm living in that time of the end and it's all happening now. I hear that all the time from people in the church, oh, this is the last days. and you know. But I, I like to ask a few more questions now and rather than just acknowledging that, why do you think this is the last days? And often it'll be linked to some kind of dispensationalist understanding of of the book of Revelation, which really I'm less and less convinced is the accurate one. Mm. So helping people go, okay, let's look at it in its context. What was it saying? And there are a few different views. I did say this with Becky. Before we get into it, I said this with Becky Babington a few months ago when we last touched on the book of Revelation. But there are some different view, ways of interpreting it that have existed throughout time. And the dispensationalist view or the uh, the premillennial, pre-tribulational view, the left behind view, is a new one. It's not. It's mm. it's only the last couple of hundred years that it's been there. Um, there is an amillennial view, which kind of just says that they see. Here's here's what ChatGPT gives us the explanation for them. Well, actually, I'll stick to I'll stick to what it says here. It says the preterist view interprets Revelation as describing events that were contemporary to its first century audience. Preterists believe most, if not all, of the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in the early centuries of the Christian era, particularly events like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So there's this sense of, oh, it was all happening place. So like a historical. Time. It's an historical account. Yep. The challenge I have with that view alone is that there seems to be this consummation I was talking about. There is a mm. sense, particularly when we get to our last chapter today, chapter 21, that's about the future. It's it's ultimately the consummation. There's something of we we're not yet experiencing. The curtains roll back, and we we want to see this ultimate victory. Mm-hmm. That's the preterist view. The historicist view approach reads Revelation as a panoramic view of church history from the time of John wrote it to the end of the world. 
Each symbol or event in Revelation is seen as representing a specific historical period or event in the Christian era. So now they're going to go, oh, that part of the chapter was related to the Middle Ages and this Mm. part was related to that. I still have a problem with that too because I think that's not Jewish thinking. Jewish thinking was that uh, beginning, middle, beginning. Jewish way of thinking things was that they were cyclic. Things happened throughout history and they repeated themselves. So Mm. to to um, narrow any one event or one prophecy or one vision down to a specific time I think is limiting – the way well, we haven't even pop- seen that so far. Like no. even just through all the stuff that we looked at, it's always been that it's something that that yeah they experienced then, but then we still experience now. Correct. Like if you read the New Testament, they're talking about things that are happening to them, events that are happening in their time then now, but then they still have like they still relate to the situations that we're going through now and everything. So to then say revelation, but that doesn't count. That for doesn't count for revelation. Now that seems to miss the point. Yeah. The pattern that seems to repeat itself in scripture a lot is this creation, decreation, mm. exile, recreation. You know, that's the pattern you see that hum- God does some creating work. Humans decreate through our own willfulness and mm. sinfulness. Um, which leads to some kind of exile away from God's presence. And then uh, um, God does a work through his spirit to recreate again. Yeah. And that's the pattern that I think that you see that you will see that pattern played out time and time again in Revelation. So that's the historicist view. The futurist view, futurists believe that Revelation primarily uh, prophesies events that are yet to occur. So this was this is where a dispensational, th- there is a dispensation yeah. in the future. This view is popular, here we go, among many modern evangelical and dispensationalist interpreters. They often see the book as a detailed forecast of the end times, including the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and the final judgment. So the whole thing is really just some kind of futurist timeline mm. of prophecy. But that's not how Old Testament prophets worked. It's not no. really how New Testament prophets worked. The idealist or symbolic view, the idealist approach interprets Revelation as a symbolic portrayal of the ongoing battle between good and evil. It doesn't tie the symbols directly to any historical events, but sees them as timeless truths about spiritual realities. This view emphasizes the spiritual lessons and truths that can be drawn from the book. And if I'm honest, this is this is the one I'm probably moving more towards. Mm. I'm not fully there yet because I can. it seems to me I'm trying to wrestle with the fact that there does seem to be certain events in the visions that seem to be more directly tied, like yep. Revelation 12, where we're about to go to. Mm. Um, and then the last of you is an eclectic or integrated approach, which basically just pick from all of those views and <laughs> make it yeah. say whatever you want. Yeah. So I think, like, I'm probably somewhere between the last two, but in terms of the myself, like, and the, as we said before, like, I didn't grow up. You didn't grow up with the dispensationalist no, so teaching. Was, uh, like, well, for me, I feel as though I'm like in that way because I sort of see a lot of that stuff and I feel as though that, like, for me, it doesn't sit with my understanding um, of not just revelation, but just like my understanding of the way that the, the Bible's written and all that, so like that. So it never, because the way that it, I, then I got taught was never to, in relation to that being a potential viewpoint. So then, so I don't have any reference for that. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think for me, I feel lucky in that way, like where that idealistic view is that, that um, is that I think that there it's, I don't think any of those are perfect, I suppose, because yeah. if you completely go for the, the the last one where you're sort of picking and choosing which means what, you sort of get caught in the fact that, um, I don't know, you can easily just go, well, all of them mean could mean future, all of them could mean past, all of them could mean now, you know, it's just that, or all of them could mean that they could happen again. Like, it's just that. But I think that we've, and for me, like, you know, I just, how I have to, like, approach 
Revelation, the same way I would approach any scripture, is that I'm reading it to then learn. I'm reading it to then see um, what it's talking about, like the people at the time. I'm talking about what it means about to to me now and how that's potentially influenced people coming up to like before now up to where I am now. And then what it's talking about in the future, what's to come. Like it's you, all scripture talks to all of those things. Yes, I like that. And then you've then got to come down and decide, okay, what, where you weight things more or less to where it's like, okay, this is more historical and maybe not as relevant to where modern times now is, or this is very relevant to where we're at. This is like, or this is very much talking about what is to come, um, but still even has if, relation even now. Even if it's historical, it still we still has learn a, from it. Yes, you know, the, the old cliche that says those who don't learn from history are destined to, to repeat, repeat it. it. Yep. So I think there is a sense in which even if we come to a conclusion that, okay, that was a particular king at a particular time, yep. it still represents the, these kings, mm. these wicked kings still represent the powers of yep. the world that are, that are allied against God. And we live in a time when there are powers that are allied against God. So yep. we can learn from that. And yep. so I think that's the, like, I think that when, that as like, you know, Rowan openly said, like, Growing, growing up and learning, like even at Bible college, the dispensationalist mm. view is that, you know, and him working through that process of learning or unlearning that or just really like recalibrating where it is that he feels though that more truly sits to what he thinks is a true representation, what the, what the writers are trying to get across is that no matter where you're sitting now, listening to what we're babbling on about now and then going to dive into a little bit is that, just because where you're at now isn't necessarily right or wrong, but where, but what we're probably asking and what we will continue to have asked and will into the future is that you don't just hold on to something and just view it in that way. Yeah, is it becomes a lens, especially with the book of Revelation. It's a lens that we read everything through. Yeah. We've started with a, a filter, which mm. um, is potentially flawed to start with. Yeah. Yeah. And that you know, we're never probably going to get a true full understanding until Jesus returns um, and, you know, we can sit down and have all those great theological mm. debates about what potentially happened if that's something yeah, if that actually you enjoy. But if we can but come <laughs> at Revelation the way we came at Isaiah, the way we yeah. come at these apocalyptic writings is that life is always hard. Yeah. It was for these early Christians in the Rome they were suffering. There's, the scholars think there's probably two, two, one of two times this was written. It was either written under the, domain, the, the, reign, the reign of Nero mm. in like 68 when he was persecuting the church or under the reign of Domitian in probably 95. Mm. And, but two times when John wrote this, when there was severe persecution and the Christians, just like the Jews of the Old Testament, were thinking, well, how are we going to live under this persecution? Life yep. is hard. And it's this unveiling back saying, let me bring you peace. Let me let me bring you hope that um, you, you, write, you feel like the enemy is against you right now. But when I unveil the curtain, you're going to see that, no, 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 there's, there's a cosmic battle going on behind yep. the scenes. There's a cosmic plan being un unveiled. There's scrolls which have got God's word written on it and those are sealed and no devil can take those away from God's plan. God's plan will be accomplished. Stay the course. Yeah. And it becomes a pastoral encouragement book. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Mm. You still will face hardship and trials, but there's a there's a hope that in the end God will right the wrongs. Yeah. And there's a reason why these fall under the peace. Yes, that, intentionally put them in there for yeah. that reason. It's Is supposed it, to be peace. Yeah. And Which is the opposite of what, what most, most people feel when the they revelation. come to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's, that is revelation. Us, like, so that's the overview of sort of what we're going to be looking at today. So sit back and 
enjoy the ride that okay. as we go through the next few, I think. We'll see um, how we go. And, yeah, we'll try our best to not get too distracted and not go down too many rabbit holes. Um, but at the same time, at least start picking at some of the things in there that that jump out and then at least start you on the journey of really yeah. being able to go through. We'll work our way through Revelation 12 and we'll just do it. We'll pull out a few things yep. that no, I won't go digging too hard. You've got mm. you've got your NIV Bible. You might find some cross-references there. Yep. We'll just talk our way through this as a means of helping people understand how they can study it themselves. Yep. All right. All right. So we said early on, obviously, that like that. So this is a bit of that. It's the Christmas story. Yep. Just a different version of it. Yep. And it starts with then. So these once yep. again we go then means chronological. No, no. This is just mm. this is the vision order. He's seeing the visions. Yep. yep. So it's yeah. So the this is the next vision that he saw. Yes, correct. Not necessarily the next. It doesn't necessarily mean the chronological the, order. Yeah. No. Um, in fact, it can't be because this is now going to talk about something that was clearly earlier. Earlier. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's going through, and I think, like I suppose, I the thing that I'll probably want to point out is the first thing about the what the the dragon is signifying. Mm-hmm. Um, which it talks about in verse 9. Yep, verse 9. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, is that's that's who the dragon is referring to. Yep, yep. Um, if you read through this already and you didn't know that, like that's a... That, that's a good simple, where he's actually yep. brought it up to the surface yep. and explained to you what the dragon is. Yep. Uh, whereas lots of other stuff won't be explained, it'll be implied. Yeah. And you need to go, go search and search for yourself. Yeah. So what was it then? What was it? That so, was that was verse nine. Verse nine. So he's explaining here this great dragon, the ancient serpent. Hello. Yep. Where was the ancient serpent? Yep. Ah, that's that's the serpent in Genesis in chapter garden. three in the garden. Yep. Called the devil or the Satan, the Satan. Yep. It's not a title, it's a it's an office. Yeah. The accuser. Mm. The one who deceives the world. Yeah was thrown down to earth. So, okay, now we're talking about a spiritual being that was in the garden mm. that was instrumental in the deception of the world. That one who seems to rule over the world, yep. that one is the one who was thrown down to earth. Yep. Overthrown. That's encouraging right there. Yeah. Yeah. That he do, he's not on a par with the Lord. No. And that's – and, yeah, we'll, that'll – continue to get revealed, I think, through most of Revelation is that, yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so that it's this pretty much you get that story. There is a lot of different weird imagery as we get through a lot of that with, you know, the dragon with seven heads and ten horns and, um, you know, his tail sl- swept one third of the stars out of the sky. Like, so this creature, devil, which is, you know, the devil mm-hmm. or uh, is – has great power. And I think that's the thing that it's trying to get a, across, I suppose, in that initial point is that that this dragon, the, the devil, has this great power and we are not to forget that. I think no. that it's okay, – and maybe that's another reason why sometimes this can be scary is that um, we're always taught that, you know, Jesus is the ultimate power and, like, you know, if, you know, rely on him and nothing will – it's that this whole idea is that there is this other being there that has great power over the earth um, and it's referenced here and that can be a scary thought for some people is that, okay, well, 
that tension is that there's this being that has this great power of the earth, but then why? But then there's God who has even more power. Mm-hmm. Why they're living in tension with each other? Like why? Why is this power? This you know. The, the devil, like why is sin, like why why are all these things hold so much power over us? But then God, who is stronger, yep. who is greater, why is he allowing it's, that? It seems why why is he not as involved yeah. as the serpent so the, is, as the, as the yeah. dragon is? So yeah. there's this there's this tension, which is that same tension of God. Why aren't the righteous? Why are the yeah. righteous suffering? Yeah, you know, if you're so powerful, why why is it that the the wicked continue to prosper? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? It's the age old question. Yeah, so that's the. I suppose like that initial part is that talking about that and then the... Can we just dig into it a little bit more? Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the yep. dragon. Yeah, and then, then there's the woman. Yep. So yeah, so then like so he stood in front of the woman and she was about to give birth. So very heavily pregnant woman ready to devour her baby son mm-hmm. um, as it was born. Okay, so, so who's the woman? The woman. Okay, so can you, have you got any... You got your own ID open there? Yeah, yep. Um, I just, I've already so, hyperlinked to... Uh, to Daniel, so I'm just going okay. to Revelation. See if we can go back to Revelation. And I'm just going to do a simple little, yep. th- this is in the back of my mind, so yep. I'm doing it in some real time. I'm not looking it up here. Yep. Verse 1, yep. then I witnessed a he- a, in heaven an event of great significance. So this is, whatever he's about to say, see is yep. important. Yep. Okay? What is it? I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Okay, yep. so we've got 12 stars. We've got the sun and the moon. Is there a reference there to Genesis? 37. Go go there for me. Yeah, I'm just then, guessing that there's a reference and, there to Genesis. And that one is, isn't that um, before be we get Joseph's, there, vision. Joseph's vision with his brothers and all that oh, stuff? That's exactly yeah, what I'm thinking it is. Pretty much where it's taken us. Yep. yep. So it's the it's the leading up to where then his brothers pretty much just get. Turf him out. Yeah, get the, the dirts with him and then chuck him out. Okay, so, yep. so he has a vision. Yep, he has what a vision. What is that vision he has? Um Look, I have had another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars, so it says 11 stars, mm-hmm. uh, were bowing down to me. Uh, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. Uh, what kind of dream is that that you have? Yeah, so that's the, the dream there. Okay, so Joseph has a dream that his 11 mm. sons bow down to him, mm. the sun, the moon, the father, the, the mother. mother, and father, and, and then the all stars. The, yeah. Okay, so the in, in the Bible, in Genesis, the mm. stars are significant of authorities. In fact, they the the ancient Jews saw the stars as the spiritual powers yep. that ruled in the heavens because that's how they understood the heavens up there. They looked mm. up and saw these bright things. They didn't know they were balls of gas burning. They thought yep. they were spiritual beings. Yep. And they saw them in the heavens and went, oh, God's up there. Mm. And all these others are spiritual beings. Mm. So this becomes this hyperlink back to Genesis 37 is mm. Joseph talking about Israel. Yeah, he is. He and his brothers are the twelve tribes of Israel. Yep. So this is this woman. Yeah, is Israel yep. in this context? So then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw Israel mm. pregnant. Yep, and we go okay, Israel pregnant. Where do we see a story of pregnancy? Can you go to chapter two? Is there a link to Genesis chapter three there? Um, give birth? No, oh, it's not referencing it directly okay. in here at the moment. Yeah. Here's where I think it's going. Mm. It's it's a hyperlink back to Genesis chapter three in the garden yep. with Eve. And it's saying, you know, your seed will crush the seed of the serpent because we already know that there's going to be a link to the serpent in a minute. Yeah. 
So this is the promise about the seed, the, the, the child of the woman. So we've now got we've got a child of Israel, which the Israelites saw as the Messiah, the one who would come, who would rescue them. We've got a promise back to, all the way back to the child of the child who would come from the woman, yep. who would crush the serpent's head. We're going to see that played out in a minute. So we have this cosmic battle being played out that references Genesis three, yep. where the, the the Lord says to the woman, "There will be a seed that will come from you. Will, that the, the serpent will." will bruise his heel, mm. he will crush the head yep. of the serpent. So this here is a picture of this Messiah, this one who would come that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, right back at the start of the Bible, yep. one who would come who would defeat the serpent. Yep. So that's the picture we've got here. It's a Christmas story. Yeah. Really, it's the Christmas story because Jesus is that seed of the woman. Yes. Galatians makes that clear. Actually, even, I think it even references Galatians in there somewhere. It probably well. does, yeah. does it? Any other references in there that I'm missing? Um, everything seems to be either a little. There's a little bit of yeah, just other verses in Revelation, but then also um, there was I saw Galatians pop up. There was also Daniel um, in verse four. It's a reference to Daniel in uh, Daniel eight. Um, the stars um, flung out. Uh, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky yep. sort of thing. And where's that in Daniel 8? Daniel 8 verse 10. We'll spend a moment on it because this is just helping our yep. listeners to understand how to do this. We won't obviously be able to do it with every verse, but That's right. just Daniel, how you do it. Daniel 8 verse 10. So I'm just trying to see if we can get context. Oh, and this also talks about the one with the horn. So Yes, um, horns. So I'll go from verse 9. So yep. out of one of them came another horn a little one which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, to, and towards the beautiful land. It grew as high as to the host of heaven. It threw down to the earth some of the hosts, so the heavenly hosts, and some of the stars, and trampled the, uh, and trampled on them. So that's the reference there. So this is a reference to Daniel having an apocalyptic vision himself that John is experiencing the same or a variation on the same vision. Yep. And a horn is a symbol of authority. Mm. Um, and you're going to see horns and crowns here. So this is a reference to the kingdoms. So talking about a horn spreading out to the north and the south and the east and the west. Yeah. Mm. You know, you can dig into who that horn represents and whether that horn represents Alexander the Great or one of the, mm. one of the you know, descendants of Alexander the Great or whatever. That's all valid study. We're not going to do that yeah. now. But the point being that it represents the kingdoms of this world that will spread out and bring their authority, trying to put their wicked authority upon the earth. Yeah. But there's this promise all the way through that there is one who will come who will reign with godly yeah. authority. That's Matthew. So, yeah. So then it references, so in uh, at the end of verse four, so that it might devour um, her child. That's reversing back to Matthew Two. That's Herod yep. who wants to devour the child. So we're still in the nativity story here. Mm. And the dragon here is being allied with Herod. Yep. How can the dragon be Herod? Herod's a man, the dragon's a spiritual being because there comes a point at which when the kingdoms, when the when the men of this world, when the women of this world, when they ally themselves with the dragon, they become one with the dragon. Yep. So Herod is really the dragon in the flesh in this story and he is seeking to devour the, the baby. Seeking to devour Jesus, and that's the whole story of the mm. the, the the slaughtering of the innocents in Bethlehem. Yeah. And of course, how did they escape that? God told Joseph to yep. 
go to Egypt in a dream. Which is we referenced earlier. So, yeah. Yeah, so it keeps going through um, references to Psalms when talking about we'll rule with the nations with an iron scepter. Yep, that's a direct um, reference to Psalms. Yeah, Psalm 2 verse 9. In verse, yeah, so later in verse 5, yeah, and and her child was snatched up. Again, so that's Acts 8, 39. Um, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. So okay. it's using that same language. Same, that'll be the same concept. Yeah. Um, I think there it's with it's, the eunuch. it's probably yeah, with the eunuch. Yeah, I think probably the picture is that it's it's referencing God protecting the child mm. Jesus mm. in Egypt while Herod was the dragon was doing his best to destroy the Messiah on in in yeah. Palestine. Yeah. So it's this protection thing. It's a yeah. direct link to the nativity story. For, yeah, and where God has prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Or times time and half a time, it yeah, says in other versions. time and half a time, which, yeah. and I think it then references that again later. It does a few times, I yeah. think. And, and does it reference that verses, from Daniel 7? Daniel 7. So I'll find exactly where it was. So it's in verse 13 where it actually says in times, times, time and half a time. So while you're referencing that, this is one of those ones where it was central to dispensationalist theology. And I'll be honest, I still... My brain wants to go, well, it mentions a specific number of days there. Surely that's a direct chronological time. And uh, the dispensationalist view is that, that that times, time and half a time is is three and a half years. One year, two times is um, is another two years and then another six months, half a year. And so that is where this belief of the three and a half years of great tribulation comes from. It's a specific time. And it seems to be referencing it as 1260 days there which is equivalent to three and a half years. So it seems very definitive. And my brain goes, because my left brain, I go, how do I make that non-literal? Mm. In my brain, I want to think that is a literal period of time. But as is the case with lots of biblical numerics, the, the reference to, yep. we just did reference to 12. Yeah. The 12 stars was not literal. Yep. The reference to 12 is a governmental, to a Jewish thinker, 12 is, an, is, an, um, is a reference to governance, so there are 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples. It's this it's this governance model. So this 1260 days doesn't necessarily mean a literal period of time. It means a period of tribulation yep. that comes out of Daniel 7. Yeah, Daniel 7. So it's referencing to verse 25. And this is, again, this is, again, another piece of apocalyptic writing. Yep, very much so. Which is then a lot of this imagery that is in... Daniel seven twenty, uh, just Daniel, Daniel 7, seven in general is through Revelation. Yep. Um, some of it is where we are here, uh, and so, but where it's pulled that from is um, twenty five, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, verse twenty five. Um, where's the, the heading that we had before? Even though I don't like headings, was actually a good heading to use for that one. So let me just find that one. Oh, so it was just an interpretation of the dream he just had, which was again was, and. Like he was pretty much this vision just sort of wigged him out. Like it was full of beasts and all this yes. sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I think even reference the horns again in that one it as does. well. Yep. Um, so yeah, so in verse 25, um, he will speak again, the most high and oppress uh, his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time times and half a time. So I think when we were talking about it before, 
it's talking about a so it's it's more of a period of time of oppression or a time of yeah, persecution persecution yeah it's actually probably quite similar to that passage we did at the end of Isaiah where it said come away mm. and I will protect you while I bring judgment on the earth I yep. think that's the thing is there's going to be persecution there's going to be hardship but I'm going to protect you in the middle of that hardship while my judgment and mm. justice is being exacted upon the unjust, I will protect you. And I think that's yep. what the promise is here. And that, cause so if we go back to revelation 14, which is where it re- specifically references time, time and half a time, but that whether it's spoken out as 42 months or 1260 days, it's referencing the same sort of understanding it that for, for a period of time, and they they're using that as a specific reference there. So this in verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she could take care of um, for a t- um, where she will be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach so it's this idea of being taken away there's a there's a time of perse- like mm-hmm. persecution there's this time where the serpent will will reign will reign and yet and the, the child yep. is being protected yep and all the child and, well, I suppose, and the and, woman. And the woman. Yep. Yeah. So the woman being Israel, God's people, being mm. protected. I wonder if the um, – does that, is there a cross-reference to the eagle's wings? Um, yeah, it's probably uh, Exodus 19. Oh, yes, because it describes the Exodus as I yep. protect, I carried you on eagle's wings. Yeah, so, yeah, so verse 4, you, um, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and – how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so now let's. This is interesting. Mm. They were protect. They were brought out of Egypt mm. on eagles' wings. The Christ child mm. is being carried back to Egypt on eagles' wings yeah. to protect the child and the mother and the father mm. and Joseph from the dragon's work in Palestine. So there's a direct reversal there, a reference to eagle's wings. So this Mm. is definitely interesting. I actually also wonder if the three and a half years, this is live chat here, I actually wonder if the three and a half years may have a literal um, aspect to it, not saying it's not exclusively literal, Mm. but I wonder if that's something like the amount of time that Jesus spent in Egypt as a young child. I'm sure the fact that that it's spoken about and the language is where it's used as like as as periods of time, mm. as well as the the more like I suppose um, the the times time and half time with more of a literal understanding of a period of time. But then they've actually used it as forty two. I think in verse eleven yep. uses forty two months and one thousand two hundred sixty days, as well as it's used as one thousand two hundred sixty days in verse twelve, in verse six, uh, in chapter twelve, verse six. So it's the the whole idea that it's. Um, they're probably, it's again, it's like where we talked about before, it's probably referencing a literal period of time, but it's referencing that as, but they're not saying that. But this not exclusively is that. Exclusively that for this situation. So it's not saying that yep. in three and a half years or, you know, 42 months or whatever, that this is what this period of time is. No, it's so like it's, it's a, developing it beyond a literal time into a it's building off a, of, a theoretical meaning, a deeper meaning of yep. persecution and protection. Yeah. Yes, I think that's that's how we have to view this kind of yep. stuff, which when you think about it, it's probably how all imagery 
in artistic writing or, or artistic work yeah. over time has developed throughout history. Yeah. Something tangible has happened, physically happened, yeah. but as it's been discussed and developed, it's gone beyond just the literal event to yeah. become a symbolic it, that event is or a period of time or or yep. a piece of armor or the sword or whatever it might be yep. whatever the whatever the um thing that's being depicted is it's come to represent more, more than, than just, just that, that thing literal. well we um, but we, we have that in we do that all the, time. all the time yeah yeah so like you know like something's a stone throw away that's like it's, right uh, things like that like just there's so many things that we use in our language which something brings on a meaning more than just the literal. That's right. And I think and, that's how this needs to be read, that, yep. that we understand that even if it is literal, it's it's come mm. to represent more. That's great. Yep. yep. Um, I think the – so I'm going further down and the next part is probably that end of, of Chapter 12 um, where it talks about um, – so verse 16. Um, so, that, yeah, the serpent is chasing um, the woman – Oh, sorry. Yeah, the serpent out of the serpent. So he's gone from a dragon to a serpent, like uh, the interchangeable. Same thing. Yeah. As we listen, as we record this late November twenty twenty three, the the Bible Project have been doing a series on the dragon in their podcast, pretty much since the middle of the year. Mm. Dragons in the Bible. Yeah, and it's deep and it's complex. And yeah. you know, have you been listening to any of it? I've oh, listened to some of them, and I've just like I've, it's I've had probably to one go. of the most deep, confusing. I, I'm sitting with John. I'm sitting with John Collins going. Where is he going with this? But it's yeah. so rich in imagery around the chaos dragons and serpents and and how humans become that. And it's all through the literature of the Old Testament. They had a mm. dragon theology, yeah. um, which we pick up here in the book of Revelation. It's quite yeah. foreign to us. Mm. We just think of dragons as medieval, you know, yeah. myth. But but it was very much deep in their theology that dragons represented the serpent, represented evil, represented death and yeah. chaos and everything that was anti-God. Yeah. Um, I suppose, and that's probably where a lot of that mythology probably was based out of, because they yeah. would have got it probably because it was in medieval times. There was a lot of that, like Christian or pagan base, which would have had a lot oh, yeah. of well, mythology the, around like dragons saint, and serpents and stuff. One of the one of the one of the saint knights mm. um, that Saint Stephen, mm. the knight that I think it's him, that was a knight that conquered the dragon, slayed the dragon, and all mm. sort of stuff. This is all rich in theology that's come out of Bible theology. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so then it comes through to the end where it talks about um, then the dragon was enraged at the woman um, and went off to wage because it couldn't get to the woman because it pretty much, no matter what happened, that, that you know, it says, but the earth helped the woman yes. by opening mouth, um, by opening its mouth and swallowing um, the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. And then the... I, so bet, the, I bet we won't do it, but no, I bet there's imagery all no, through, through there that, too. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then the dragon um, was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Um, so pretty much so that is in reference pretty much just of... Well, that's again, that's a Genesis hyperlink. So that's Genesis 3. Yes, that's the, the, that I'll bring enmity between yep. the woman... And your offspring, between your, womb, between yeah, exactly. your, your offspring and hers, yeah. um, strike the, um, your head, and you will strike his heel. So, so, to a people who are suffering as as um, of the seed of the of the son, as, mm. as Christians who yep. are the children of God, that offspring, yep. they're they're the offspring, they're suffering, yep. and this is an understanding. Ah, what's really going on here is that there's a war taking place. Yep. The dragon is uh, trying its best to attack you. Yep. And it's going to go on and develop that and go, that's what you feel like right mm. now. But hang on, just keep, st- bear with me because in the end, the mm. story, the, dra- the dragon's not going to end too well for him, but it's going to end well for you. Yeah. That's the story. Yeah. And then it just yeah, finishes off those who keep God's command uh, commands and hold fast to their uh, their testimony about Jesus. So that's who the offspring are. 
those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So, um, yeah. I want to pull out one more verse and then we yep. move on, and that's verse 11. Uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll read from verse uh, verse 10. Mm-hmm. After the d- dragon has swept out, his tail has swept out the yep. angels, it says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. So you could be thinking, well, that can't be chronological because we're still experiencing some of the effects mm-hmm. of the serpent on the earth. But it says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. So he's still working on the earth, but yep. he's been kicked out of heaven. The victory is complete in heaven. You might feel like he's still working on the earth, but he's not got yep. authority up there in heaven anymore. He's been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. And they defeated him. Who? We, us, the Christians, mm. they, the people of God. They defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony they did not love their lives so much as they were afraid to die, or as the old saying, they loved their, not their lives unto death, it says in the older versions. Yep. So this is a picture for a suffering people that says the serpent has been thrown down. Yes, the serpent is persecuting you. Yes, the serpent can't reach the sun, yep. but he's coming after the offspring of the sun. But if you will stay the course and continue to share your testimony, continue to overcome because Christ has already overcome through his death and you overcoming by what Christ has done and by what you're declaring as your testimony, the way you live your life, mm. even if it costs you your life, even if you lay down your life unto death, you will overcome. So it's an encouragement that life's going to be hard, but the laying down of your life is actually victory. Yep. You're not just victorious because you've got a comfortable life and all's going well. Mm. You can be victorious even in the face of persecution and mm. hardship. So yep. you can see how that's an encouragement to not just mean they weren't going to, these people went through tremendous persons. Many died for their faith. Many were martyred, but there was this hope that in the end you win. Yep. Yeah. So that's Revelation 12, hey? Yep. Now we're going to do 14. 14. Let's go to 14, the lamb and the 144,000. Okay, Revelation chapter 14. Uh, and because we're not here trying to break the um, Bible Wait What podcast record of... Sorry, that still stands with Jeannie. Yep. Um, and yeah, look, as much as I like talking uh, and going through Bible stuff, having these discussions, it's fun, but um, we know that, yeah, it's probably not Most great Most of you have to... got better things to do. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're going to try and do for not just this chapter... Except for Marnie. Marnie listens every week. Thank you, Marnie. <laughs> Shout out to Marnie. Um, is that we're going to try and... Um, just do a bit of a, like a flyover for each of the verses, uh, each of the chapters, sorry, and like look at the chunks of verses that are sort of here um, and the little stories that they have sort of inside that. So we'll, we won't go as in depth and go into the Old Testament stuff. We'll just say, you know, like, well, this references the Old Testament yep. and just sort of work our way through to make it a little yep, bit quicker. Right. And a bit We've more already probable. said, you know, get yourself a cross-reference Bible yep. and spend the time on it. And then we'll do it more depth next year, but yep. just for the sake of time now. Yep. Yep. Um, so first section, so the first five verses um, is talking about the forty, uh, the 144,000 uh, and the lamb, which is Jesus. So, mm-hmm. um, so the 144,000, so again, um, this has been talked about before and I know that people think like the literal 144,000, that's all that's allowed in heaven, that's it, there's 144,000. Yep, Jehovah's believe there's 144,000. Yep. Uh, uh, the left behind theology thought there was 144,000 Jews that were saved during the tribulation, had a mark yep. on them so that they wouldn't die. Yep. Uh, that's what they took it literally. Yep. yep. So again, like this is 
one of those ones where it's a it's it's a talking about that there is a a group of people that we set apart. Like so, we are part of the. If you are again, like I talked about in verse um, verse twelve, like you're you're part of the the group of people that are the sons of you follow Christ and His commands, and that's you are part of that hundred forty four thousand type thing. Um, yeah. So. So what is the 144,000? 144, 144,000 is, what is 12 times 12? Yeah. 144. Again, those so numbers. there's definitely a link to governance here. Yeah. There's, there's a, that they will rule with him upon yeah. the earth. It says they have been redeemed from the earth. They, there's ruling taking place here. So this is a picture of not just a literal number of people, but any, but all of God's people who have our, our name written, yeah. God's name figuratively written on our head. Yeah, and there's, that's a, that's a reference to the Old Testament yeah, too. Yeah, because uh, I think I, don't, I think it's also in Daniel where it actually says like where it's the hundred forty-four thousand, and it's the twelve tribes, and then there's twelve thousand from each of those because Daniel tribes. seven. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's like that. Like yeah, well, we referenced Daniel seven last time, so a lot of this stuff harkens back to that. So it's a bit of that. It's yeah, that's it's the, again that numerology type thing that that the significance of the numbers are there for a reason. The reason they chose this wasn't just this arbitrary number no. or this this is the exact number. There's a reason why this, this number was this chosen. Intention behind yeah. it. it came to mean something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So that's the hundred and forty four thousand. That's yep. the ruling. It's this governance term. Mm. Uh, these are people who have stood the test of time. So it's an encouragement yep. that your name is. Mm. So the reference to having uh, what's it say the, that they had. No, uh, the mark on their the mark on their forehead. So, they, yeah, that's so in verse a protection one thing, verse yep. one. So that's a protection thing. So there's a, a link back to Ezekiel there, where Ezekiel had a vision of an angel going through Jerusalem before the Babylonians came, and to bring judgment and vision marking all those that were righteous, so they would be protected in the middle of judgment. Yep. That's the picture. You you guys, early church, church seven churches in Rome, seven churches in in Asia. This is written to you're suffering persecution. Yep. You have the Lord's name marked on your head. You will be protected. Yep. Won't worry about mentioning the, the like so then it's talking about there's a song that only that you will know. It's more about like there's a. Yep. A redemption song. Yeah. There is a thing that we know, like that we will inherently know as part of the 544,000, yep. part of those that were set apart. Yep. Um, and, and and it's a, it's his song redemption, which is going to bring up songs of Moses and songs of Miriam in the Old Testament delivered. That's yep. the kind of, the, there's some kind mm. of, redemption song that those that, that are saved can sing. Yeah, and then it says like, and it's because they remained pure. virgins. They remained yeah, pure. pure. Um, that's their, their, yeah, their not doesn't mean there. sexual virgin. It means pure yeah. in heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, offered as first fruits to the Lamb of God. So the idea of first fruits is, again, something that's talked about in both, you know, um, in James talks about it. Um, the first idea of first fruits, but it's Jeremiah, it's an Old Testament. It's something that, yeah, through it's the whole through the Bible, through the Bible, yep. Old Testament, Jesus Testament. is the first fruits of the living from among the dead. Yep, yep, um, yeah. That's and a whole theme you could pick up. First fruits, you could study as a yes. theme. Yep. So that's um, that's that first section of um, one to five, one to five, uh, and then we go through, and it's verses six through to thirteen, uh, and this idea of of three angels coming, and pretty much as they're coming through, and they're just proclaiming to the earth, what is, what is happening. So pretty much saying it, fear God. Like, so the first angels fear God, give him glory. Um, because the hour of his judgment has come, um, worship him. And then the second angel comes fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, which is again, a reference back to Isaiah, um, where we were earlier. Um, yeah, make, um, yeah, which made all the nations drink 
um, and then, you know, pretty much fall into adultery. So, so Babylon is another one that is a literal place but comes to represent yeah. all the powers of the earth that Similar are allied to against Moab God. When we talk about Similar before. to Moab. Yeah. And it comes from Babel where there was a symbol of human, you know, yeah. the t- that's what Babel was, the, s- the place where they built, tried to build a tower to become mm. like God and it symbolizes all the nations that become like God. At the time of this being written, mm. Rome is Babylon. In fact, Peter will write in his letter, the children here in Babylon send their greetings. So Paul yeah. actually calls Rome Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. So that's the picture here. He's, yeah. They knew, they understood, ah, Rome, the Roman Empire, that's Babylon. Yeah. And we have our own Babylons yeah. in our time as well. Yeah. Uh, and then the third angel came through um, and just said, look, if anyone is worshipping the beast and its image receives the mark on their forehead, so and similar, like so it's like instead of choosing to then get the mark of the God's 144, mark. God's mark, yep. then you are and receive the mark of the of the beast. Um that yeah, and you too drink you will drink God's wine of fury. Pretty much you will face the the wrath of God by choosing yep. to go down that path the same way as that those um, they will also face the things that are leading you down that path will face the wrath of God. And I'll just say quickly, I don't think it's in this passage because the mark of the beast is referenced in an mm. earlier chapter, the 666, yep. the thing that causes everybody confusion. Mm. Most simply, most scholars believe that there's a, that's more Bible numerics where yep. letters meet numbers and it's referring specifically to Emperor Nero who was persecuting them. Yep. 666 actually spells, the word Nero spells 666, yep. adds up to 666. Yep, so that's... Um, yeah, so that's that one, that part there. Yeah, so yeah, and then so this calls for patience, endurance of people um, of God who keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So stay the course, stay folks. The course, stay yeah. the course. It's hard, but stay the course. You win in the end. Yep. And then the third chunk of that is verses fourteen um, to the end, through verse twenty, um, and it's yet yeah, the earth and the the wine press imagery. Um, so again, a lot of hearkening back to Daniel again. Um, so wine presses were always seen as a sign of judgment. Mm. The analogy was used quite often in the Old Testament mm. and in J- John the Baptist used it that way too. Yep. Jesus used it that way. Because, you know, you're squashing grapes with your feet, yep. so it's this sense of under your feet judgment. Yeah. Yep. So when you see it, that's what you're referring to. Yeah, and there's like, yeah, talking like of reaping and sowing again, like this harvest, harvest imagery, um, yep, of the, uh, yeah, because, yeah, it's talking about, yeah, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So it's, you know, it's, again, talking about, like, all this imagery of coming down of the, so I was talking about, yeah, the seed on the cloud, the son of man, again, back to that Daniel 7, which is, again, like a lot of that Daniel 7 imagery. Um, Angel came out and it's like this idea of that the harvest is ready like the coming down and there's that, again, that trampling and pressing down. There's going to be the the trials and tribulations. There's going to be the oppression that is coming against you. Um, but that's because it's the time. The it's time, the time is of judgment. So Joel, we weren't going to spend too much time in the yeah. Old Testament, but Joel says, let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them all. Mm. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread the grapes for the winepress is full. Mm. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these peoples. So it's definitely a picture of God vindicating the righteous and finally bringing judgment. So that's the picture that you've got there in um, Revelation chapter 14. Yep. All right. All right. 
let's um, push forward into it. Was there anything else in nah, there? No, oh, look, there's plenty yeah, more, but we're not going to do it. Anything else that you really want nah, to touch on? No, nothing else there. We could, we could go into all kinds of different references there, but yep. giving people enough food for thought. Yep. So we'll go straight into chapter 15. Chapter 15. Okay, here we go. Chapter 15. We're going to do 15, 19, and 21 in 30 minutes. Yep. Let's so do it. Your complete guide of revelation in 30 minutes. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, Needless to say, we'll be skipping a lot. So, yeah. And, but I think we've given enough. Like, yeah, I think enough to, to at least wet that start start the um the process for you this, to work through some of that revelation stuff. And and as Pastor Ron said, we'll be looking at revelation yep. again uh, next year. So hopefully I'll know a bit more about it then. <laughs> um. So, yeah. So first up... Um, yeah, so it's the song of well, it references Moses and the and the Lamb. So yep, I'll uh, I'll probably just hand it straight to you so you can jump straight in. Okay, well, the first of all, of they, they see this vision of seven angels mm. and seven plagues. We won't go into all the, the last plagues, but plagues is definitely a reference to Egypt. And mm. the, you know, yeah. anytime you see plagues, that's the judgment of God. You have got to be thinking about the judgment against the Egyptians. So the Exodus story. There's a lot of similarities between Exodus here. Um, the, the number seven repeats multiple times. There's no yeah, – you, you'd be pri- surprised how many times seven appears in uh, in mm. John's revelation. Clearly it's an important number, that number of completion and fulfillment. It's all over the book of Revelation. Um, seven angels, seven plagues, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven, 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 seven sevens. Yep, it's all over the place, which is the picture is you're supposed to get out of that is that there's, it's a completing thing. This book is – is consummating God's plan. That's yeah. what it is. It's the fulfillment of God's plan, hence the number of seven. Now, as they were redeemed, they were singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So the song of Moses is a reference to Exodus 15, which is the song they sang after they were delivered from through the Red Sea. I will mm. sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. This song of deliverance from the powers that were oppressing them. Mm. And they call this song, Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the angels, who will not fear you and bring on to your name. For you are holy and all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's this, this reference to this deliverance psalm, this mm. deliverance song. Now, I wanted to just pick up on the lamb because we kind of all know oh, the lamb of God is Jesus. Mm. Uh, but the lamb is depicted in a very specific way in the book of Revelation that we don't see necessarily elsewhere. It's definitely to do with this picture of this slaughtered lamb. But the first reference to to Jesus, the lamb in, in Revelation, the book of Revelation comes in, in Revelation chapter 5. I'll just go there um, because it's important the, the way that it's depicted. So John sees this vision of heaven and there's this scroll which represents the un. The, the wrapping up of God's history, the deliverance, the yep. scroll there um, in verse, let's start of, it says, he says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of one who was sitting on the throne and there was writing inside and outside the scroll and it was sealed with seven seals. This picture of it was sealed. It couldn't be tampered with. Uh, the seven seals just mean completely sealed by God. And I saw a strong angel who shouted, who is worthy to break the seals and open this scroll? Who is worthy to bring what is written in this scroll to pass on the earth? Mm. 
Mm. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll, even the Lord himself. Mm. Why is that? Well, it's because it's the scroll that represents humanity's history and God had partnered with humans. And even though he was bringing everything to part, he could have brought history to its fulfillment on his own, but because he willingly limited himself to work with humans and partner with them, Mm. it needed to be a human that would complete the plan for humanity. And so John begins to weep because no one is found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders says, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. So the the serpent says to John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion. So you can see John's about to look and he's expecting to see a lion, Mm. which is a reference to Exodus, sorry, to Genesis, that Jacob's prophecy about Judah being a lion's cub, this one who would reign as a lion. And it says in verse six, then I looked and I saw a lamb looked as if it had been slaughtered. And it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God sent into all the world. So he was expecting to see a victorious, conquering, regal um, lion like yeah. like uh, C.S. Lewis's, what's his name? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, oh, I know you got me as well. <laughs> got me too late today. <laughs> From Narnia. Oh Narnia. Yeah, everyone will go, duh. But yeah, I know. Anyway, you're expecting to see, uh, I've got Simba in my mind. It's not Simba. Yeah. <laughs> What is his name? You'll think of it while I'm talking. And he's expecting to see this lion. And as he turns, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a slaughtered lamb. Jimmy's looking it up. I can't believe believe we're not remembering it, but that's where our brains are working late in the day. So he's expecting to see a a regal lion. He sees a slaughtered lamb. Come on, Jimmy. Aslan. Aslan. There we go. So he's expecting to see Aslan. And instead he sees a slaughtered lamb. And so this lamb is this one who's conquering is not conquering through his ruling and mm. reigning and his victory and his authority. He's conquering through the one that the fact that he surrendered and gave up his life. That's how, and that's how the lamb is depicted mm. all the way through the old, through the book of revelation, which is important for us as Christians reading it because the people reading this are suffering persecution and hardship and giving up their lives mm. and being martyred and shedding blood. And he's trying to say, that's the way to victory. Yep. Just like your Messiah was conquering through his giving up his life, so you conquer through giving up your life as well. Yep. So that's probably enough out of Revelation 15. Yep. Even though I spent most of the time in Revelation 5, it's yep. it helps to understand that. So we're moving towards the end. We're going to go to, 19 to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Okay, so there's uh, well, two sort of chunks to chapter 19. Uh, so the first, what is it, first 10 verses um, are a song. Uh, this uh, Referencing a song. Referencing a song. Mm. Um, but it's the, the, uh, the triumph over Babylon, like the fall of Babylon. Yep, so we've already established that Babylon comes to reference the kingdoms of this world allied against God. And uh, immediately prior to this, in the end of chapter 18, we've seen the finality of Babylon's doom, this overthrow of this. So ultimately, you know, this is is referencing the final overthrow Mm. of Babylon, not just the mini overthrow along the way, but the final, in the end, Babylon is defeated. 
And then after they see and witness this final, remember this is an apocalypse, this is a, a peeling back mm-hmm. into eternity and seeing the ultimate overthrow. And it says there was a great multitude shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory belong to our God for his just, his tr- true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged the blood of his servants. Again, they shouted, hallelujah. Babylon is overthrown. A smoke mm. goes up forever. So it's this song of praise that in the end, the kingdoms of this world, well, it says earlier that mm. they become the kingdoms of our God. The yep. kingdoms of this world are overthrown. So there's this beautiful picture mm. of victory. Yep. And it, it's sort of like if you can imagine it as like a on a on a stage play, and the curtain is pulled back and they they're suffering. The curtains pull back and then there's a giant choir of saints singing about mm. we're we win in the end, I think, is a good way to view this. Someone should draw that. Yep. Hmm. Well, I'm sure you know, someone's probably Someone probably something. has. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, the whole thing is just sort of laced with different imagery and different, uh, like yeah, like the 24 elders and, you know, just the linking back in and out. So of, 24 elders is two times 12. It's yep. usually a sign of governance again. It's the governance probably the, a lot of people think it's probably the 12 tribes and, tw- you know, the, the, patri- the patriarchs mm. of the Old Testament and the apostles, that kind of yep. mentality, old and new. Yeah. So, yeah, just a lot of, yeah, jump like jumping around and, yeah, New Testament, Old Testament references. So that's, yeah, a lot to dive into there if you um, want to, and, yeah, just great imagery as part of that. There is um, an artist many years, probably 30 years old now. You can search revelationillustrated.com. And this was a lady who made did, um, made an attempt to put a lot of these images into mm. artwork. Quite fascinating to look at. Just search revelationillustrated.com. You'll see them all come up. Yeah, it just gives you a picture of what John was seeing. Yeah. All right. And then in uh, in the second section, uh, so that's this is verses 11 through to um, 21, so the rest of that um, chapter there. Uh, it talks about a heavenly warrior, the, this uh, rider on a white horse, uh, and they're defeating the beast. Um, so, yeah, so this is, again, like the, um, yeah, it starts off with uh, this rider, uh, rider on a white horse is called Faithful and True, uh, uh, where uh, he wages uh, justice, he judges and wages war. Um, his eyes are uh, like blazing fire and his head has many crowns and it's just this, yeah. And then the, um, the one which we, we spoke to, but did we, we actually spoke about this, did we, or did we, was this an off when we're talking about earlier about the, the robe? Um, I can I think it might've been off air, but yeah. we, we might've referenced it. I can't remember whether yeah, we were on air or off air. We've been having a few conversations yeah. in between chapters with this one, so we can mm. try to keep it on track. Um, so the robe dipped in blood. Yeah. So where it's it's a reference back to Isaiah sixty three, um, where the like the robe becomes you know, dipped in blood, dipped as, in it blood as it tramples out, tramples out the grapes, tramples out the justice. But where this yeah. is the which is this this is that he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. So yes. like the that the idea of the the justice isn't from like the blood isn't there from the the you know the trampling down that the blood is already there. From the from Christ's yeah Christ's death yes so yeah. it's a rework of the original yeah. that's trying to show that victory doesn't come through 
some kind of military victory. The mm. apostles even thought that. Even at the end of Jesus' life, they still didn't get it. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time for military victory? And Jesus yeah. says, you guys, you don't get it yet. Get it. You don't get it. That's not how it's going to work. And, um, you know, he he overthrew not through military victory but through mm. giving up his life. It's an yep. upside-down kingdom, and that's what this picture is saying, is that he overcomes because of the fact that he has already given up his life. Revelation twelve eleven. we said it a little while ago, yep. overcome by the blood of the lamb, not through uh, the blood of the the victim, not through the blood of the oppressors being yep. killed, but through the blood of the oppressed being killed, through yep. giving up our lives. So that's mm. the robe dipped in blood here. Yep. So this is a picture now. Of God, we've gone from a lamb to this military. It harkens back to John's original vision of Jesus with mm. seven horns and a yeah, sorry. So seven crowns and stars around his head, and yep. and seven lamps, seven stars in his hand, and all this picture. I think it's Revelation chapter. Uh, might what be Revelation chapter one. I think one or two. Yeah, early oh, it on could be chapter the... three. It could be right back at the beginning somewhere, where he has this vision of of, of Jesus as an authoritative, yeah. victorious figure. Like lot, yeah, a lot of it's yeah, chapter one. And, chapter one. Yeah. yeah, when he first sees him, and then even through into chapter six as well. Right. Yeah. So there's this picture of now this victorious one who's reigning, and um, and and ruling, yeah. um, and conquering, but conquering through a different kind of yeah. conquering. And that, yeah, again, like that. And then he has the name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's the, yeah. Well, which is a political statement. Yeah. Because that was a term that was given to Pharaoh. Sorry, mm. to Pharaoh too, probably to Pharaoh too, but given to Caesar. Yeah. Caesar was King of Kings. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar called himself the King of Kings in the book of Daniel. So it, he is actually saying, no, 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 no there's no I earthly am. king. I am the King yeah. of all kings. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, well, it got finished, yeah. And then I saw the beast and the and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider of the horse uh, and his army. Um, but the beast was captured um, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. Um, so, yeah, just that pretty much it, it's, the overthrow, it's, it's overthrow of the forces of, the evil. Force of evil. Yeah, we, yeah. Won't, we won't go into the beast and who the beast is and all that because there's lots of different views about that. You can search yeah. that up yourself. Um Nikolai Carpathia, which is the name of the beast <laughs> left behind. But yeah. um, I don't think that's how I read it anymore. It's this it's these powers that are allied with the dragon against against the Lord that are yep. overthrown. Um, and in the end we win. Stay the course. Yep. All right, well, we're nearly there. We're gonna go on to twenty one. Twenty one. Which yep. is kind of like the beginning of the deliverance, the end. This is the consummation. Yeah. Twenty one and twenty two. This is the whole Bible being summed up and fulfilled here in this chapter. So this is an exciting way to wrap up our podcast today. Okay, chapter 21. And uh, yeah, the uh, the wrap up of our um, breeze through Revelation. Um, so we're just going to, yeah, this is the, as Rowan said, this culmination of all of this um where all this was heading to, like the of the whole Bible, pretty much, is this, this understanding of, you know, this, the ending, what the the what the when Jesus returns, what it's going to look like. This is the the final image, really bringing it all together. This the, is the the culmination, the fulfillment of Genesis yeah. chapter one. Really, yeah, it's the full arc, yeah, right well, to the end. It starts off twenty one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, hello, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. Okay, there we go. Uh, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, um, out of heaven from God. 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed as, um, for her husband. And I hear a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is, um, is now among the people and he will dwell with them, just like in what Eden was meant to be. Yes. Um, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe um, every tear from their eyes. Uh, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain uh, for the old order of things has passed away. Um, yeah, it's just this beautiful imagery of what's of what's in store. What's in store? It's like imagine you know back to our apocalypse unveiling the curtain being torn mm. back. This is like the final act. Yep. This is what's going to happen in the end. Now, yep. don't worry about when this is going to happen. I don't think that's the point. Mm. They're not trying to predict a time. Yep. They're just saying this is the ultimate consummation: the yep. new heavens, the new earth, wiping away every tear, no more death, no more crying, yep. no more pain. Hold that. That vision in your heart, folks, is what it's saying. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then it goes, well, it, and it talks more, more imagery just around the same thing that, yeah, like the pretty much that everything has come to be. I'm the, and says like, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, and so then it goes through into then the idea of the New Jerusalem, like the, you know, and the Bride of the Lamb, which is the title for, the, for that second section. So from verse nine. Um, Sure, there was nothing in that little bit above that we needed to jump in on. Uh, it says in verse seven, "Those who are victorious will inherit all this, mm. and I will be their God, and they will be my children." So this is like a, it's like God's giving them a picture yep. to encourage them to stay. And there's actually some of the references way back in the beginning of Revelation to some of the churches. They yep. that they that are victorious and hold on to the end because there's yep. this persecution you're facing. So this is just like keep this vision in your mind. If you stay, even if it costs you your life, yep. if you stay, you will inherit this beautiful vision. Yep. It's like a goal to achieve. A goal. It's like him saying, hang in there because this is what's mm. in store. Yeah. And then so, again, idea of seven pops up, seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven last plays came to me. Um Come, I will show you uh, show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Uh, and he carried me away uh, in the spirit to the mountain, the great high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, now down out of heaven from God. Uh, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like a precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then it goes on to describe, you know, these great high walls where there's 12 gates and there's 12 angels. and So there's governance know, there. Then the 12... Um, tribes of Israel are written there, yep. and um, yeah, again that idea of the the, the three gates um, to the east, three to the north, three to the south, three to the west. This, you know, making this big square like the this big evenness and yep. And that, then there was that was a picture of in the in the way they were camped in the yeah. in the Exodus. Three tribes on the north, three on the, the south, south, three on the west, and three on the east. Yep. Yep. Like yeah, and then the idea of like, and it goes through all of the like, oh, he measured out the perfect length, and it was exactly. Yeah, once again, it's like the reference here: one hundred and forty-four yeah. cubits, and all. It's all numerics, yeah. so you can research all of that. It doesn't mean it's literal. No. This is not a literal city. This is a this is a apocalyptic vision, mm. rich, dense with imagery that means something. It's not a physical walled city falling out of the sky. That's what yeah. it. That's what he sees, but that's not what it is. That, no, yeah, it's a, it's it's to produce an image. And it's all these images and all these things that they that we're reading all harken back to all this imagery that they've heard before. Yes, that's right. Um, so it's to, it's to induce these the, like the imagery in their mind is to then harken them back to the the promises and the things that they've heard before, yep. all throughout the Old Testament. Correct. Mm. 
Uh, so yeah, like the the wall we made of jasper, the city is pure gold, more pure than glass, and um, yeah, this you know it would be if the first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, third, like it just goes through, and that's all that again harkening back to just all this imagery. I would imagine without looking at it that all those references to jasper and yeah. carnelian and sapphire and all that they probably all linked to the tabernacle in the mm. desert and Exodus and the priestly garments that have all these stones and things on them. I think yeah. you'd find there's some links there. Yeah, so there's some links priestly there. language. And then like, so some of it even, and even like even references that the precise identification of some of these aren't exactly, they're not exactly certain on, yep, right. but it, there is a lot of that referencing back to a lot of those things where there's like, it's all the idea of, yeah, the, again, like the imagery of the 12, these, these 12 precious stones. Yeah. It's like that whole thing again. In a, and the twelve gates, there were twelve pearls on each gate, um, each made of a, each gate made of a single pearl. Jeez, how big's the? <laughs> yeah, I know. I often think about it, how big must the pearl? So yeah. it's got to be something different to that. You know, yeah. this is that's a that's a very one very big oyster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like it's, it's, and that, like you get that idea, like the streets of the um, the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Yeah. So like it's it's crazy. How like can you have something that's gold that's pure, pure as glass? As glass, like yeah. it's it's gold it's, isn't transparent by definition. And it's like it's all this imagery to it's like again it's got all those hyperlinks and these and these numbers and all these meaning to then harken you back to think back to all these promises to yes. all of these things that have been said before, are all coming to fulfilment. Yep in this time. This is final recreation. In fact, in yep. chapter 22, we're not going to do yep. it. I'm just looking at the heading in, in yep. the NLT. It actually, in the NIV where I'm at now, it actually yep. says Eden restored. Yep. So this is, the picture here is this is the this is the Eden, the fulfillment of what Eden was supposed to be. Finally, the arc of the entire Bible is coming to its close. Yep. It started with a garden, a small garden that looked like heaven. Now yep. we have a garden city, yep. a city where it's a large city. It's a vibrant city. God was dwelling in the Garden of Eden. Now God is dwelling in this place. Yep. It says there's no temple in this place because the the Lord God Almighty and the God, and the Lamb are its temple. It yep. doesn't need a physical temple like they had in the wilderness. They yep. need it in the wilderness. They need a tabernacle and a temple. Mm. But now the fulfillment of Eden, heaven and earth have been reunited here fully, beautifully. Yep. And it's not just a garden. It's now a garden city, city. Yep. bigger than that. It has walls, which are what a city is by definition. An ancient mm. city, we don't have walls around our city now, but we have other kinds of walls. Protect you <laughs> come into the country, you've got to go through a wall of protection, the, border, the border, yeah. border control. But in those days, border control was their walls. Mm. But this city is the walls are open, the gates are open. So they're, they're symbolic at best now yep. because there's no need for walls and protection because God yep. is there and the righteous are there. So it's a beautiful picture of mm. Eden restored. Yeah. And then, yeah, like it. And on no day will its uh, gates ever be shut, um, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone do, um, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beautiful. Let me finish with the beginning of chapter 22 because it's all mm. the same story. Yep. Then in the middle of this, the angel showed me a river with the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood, what was it? The tree of life. Yep. Back to Eden yeah, back again. To Eden. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer is there any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, hearkening back to earlier passages. There will be no more night. There will be no need of light lamp or, or light in the city. All the light of the sun for the Lord God mm. will give them life and they will reign forever and ever. What a picture mm. yep. of Eden fully restored, the ark of the Bible from beginning mm. to end finishing. Yeah. So I think probably the most important thing to take away, like the and and or like encourage you to go and do your own study in Revelation and in into Isaiah and like across the whole Bible, like the Bible is there to to continually be going back to. It's not a static yep, thing because true. where you are when you read it and where you will pretend, and then when you come back to it, whether it's months, years, decades later, you will be different yes. by then continually to work and to live and to and to become draw yourself closer to God and God will continue to reveal and to reveal um, more and more. Is that the whole idea of Revelation is that it, it is not this prescriptive thing that is going to happen. It is, um, it is a story about the it's the, to give you a, this beautiful imagery, um, whether it's some of it a bit crazy and out there, some of it maybe even is scary of the completion of what is going to happen when Jesus returns and this beautiful completion. Yep. So it's nothing to be, uh, like there's no need to, to come at this with fear or no. with um, trepidation. All, all the fearful trepidation language should be should be realised. That's not that that's levelled in a way that is supposed to be indicative of um, God's justice and mm. God's judgment against wrong. Yep. In one sense, a person going to jail for the rest of their life should be fearful. Yeah, that's what it's talking about. It's it, you have to see it as as God bringing about justice. But when that happens, most people go, "Well, that's right. That's good. That's mm. what needed to happen." Yep. So that's the picture. That God will right the wrongs and he will wipe away every tear, as it said there. That's the hope that we have. That's Mm. why we keep going. Yeah. That's why we shouldn't spend so much time worrying about, oh, how dark the world is and how Mm. dark the times are. There's encouragement within these apocalyptic writings that God God is the bringer of peace even in Mm. the midst of darkness, even in the midst of of what would seem to be the opposite of peace, anti-peace. Yeah. And like in Job, in the middle of his everything – I know still, that yeah. my Redeemer lives yeah. and I shall see him upon the earth. That's a great mm. way to finish. Hopefulness in the midst of it all. Gotcha. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'll talk to you next time.